Welcome back to the Demystify Sci podcast. I'm Michael Shiloh. I'm Anastasia. Today we have Leighton Woodhouse on the show, and he is talking about the decay of civilization. And we start off with the homelessness problem, which we have had a lot of experience with out here on the West Coast ourselves, and it is not such a simple solution as helping people out, because helping people out has resulted in not less homelessness, but more of it. And then this ties into the wider question of how do we know what's actually happening and how is that being controlled? And is it being controlled for good or bad reasons? And even if it's being controlled for good reasons, is that a good thing? And personally, I think that the control of information and the miscontrol of information is the biggest threat to everything we have going that's good in the world right now. And I'm really, really, really passionate about that topic. So I was really excited to sit down and talk about it really for the first time in full on this podcast. And I hope we do more of it in the future. If you like the conversation, leave a comment, uh, subscribe. If you've already done both of those things and you want to help us keep growing, consider coming over to our Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash demystifysci. And for a few dollars a month, you can put some life into the project. You can also come to our weekly patron chats where you get to kind of meet other people that are focused on similar scientific, social, philosophical, and political questions as you grow your network of people that are interested in figuring out how the world works. And in the future, what we want to be able to do is we want to be able to fund independent projects. And that's not just scientists, that's also journalism, that's also technology. And so all of the money that we are collecting through the patron is going towards supporting the project, making it better, and then eventually into supporting other people's projects as well. So consider coming over and joining us and enjoy the conversation. We'll see you next week. The scientific revolution starts now. I'm, I'm a reporter and I'm a documentary filmmaker. Um, I come out of the political left um, uh, for years and years, was um, doing sort of professional um, activism type stuff. Uh, but like more and more people, I've become pretty disenchanted with the left. The left has changed a lot. We can get into that. Um, but I'm sure people have heard it before because there's, I'm, you know, I'm not the only one. Um, there's, there's a lot of people like me. Um, so my, uh, my reporting has been much more heterodox and has been much more skeptical of a lot of the sort of the, the claims of, um, of, um, of the political left, which have become sort of the claims of the establishment, in my opinion. Um, so I report a lot about uh, drugs and crime and homelessness, in part because I'm interested in the, the subject in its own right, in part because I'm interested in urban social policy, um, and in part because I'm in the Bay Area where things are, where it feels like kind of like civilization is slowly unraveling. And so it's just, in, you know, it's right in our backyard. It's an interesting thing to 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 look at and try to understand. Um, and, uh, and then on the other end, I also, you know, I've, I, I work with Michael Schellenberger, who's a, a journalist that some people might've heard of. Um, the two of us have a publication that we started together called public, which is on Substack. Um, you know, he wrote a book about called San Francisco, which is about, um, sort of the, the demise of, of San Francisco, um, due to drugs, crime, and homelessness and, and due to, 
the government, the sort of the political mismanagement that has led to all those problems and compounded all those problems. Um, but we also cover censorship, online censorship. We are part of the Twitter Files team. Um, we have been diving more and more into that question. Um, we can talk about ways in which those two themes are related. I, I can't pretend that that I you know, was led to one because by the other that I saw any connections. Initially, it was more just opportunistic. We had an opportunity to, to be part of Twitter files and we jumped at it. Um, but, you know, a lot of these themes um, in some sort of abstract social theory ways, we've been seeing how they tie together just in terms of um, the political. So to answer your initial question, the thing that drives me most, the big question that drives me, and this is where these two things these two topic areas kind of intertwine is that I believe that we're entering into a new form of governance in the United States and a new form of sort of political ideology, um, which um, the censorship stuff that we cover is very deeply enmeshed in. But I also think that a lot of the mismanagement and unraveling of American cities um, is also intertwined in that same thing. And this is is very abstract the way I'm describing it. So we can put some kind of flesh on those bones, but that's to answer your sort of 30,000 foot question. I mean, just to make it really personal, how how have things changed in the Bay Area since, I mean, you grew up there, right? Yeah. What what are some of the can you just outline that for people who aren't out here on the West Coast and maybe don't yeah. have that kind of, I mean very yeah. Most people don't have that longevity with one city too. Yeah. I grew up in Berkeley, um, and I I'm I, I'm Gen X, um, so I came up in like the eighties and mostly the nineties is kind of the, my most distinctive memories. In the nineties, um as uh Everybody knows because people keep reminding everybody of it every time you complain about rising crime and people say, well, it's not as bad as in the 90s, um, as if that somehow makes it less of a problem. But the 90s were, you know, the height of, um, I think, the height of, I don't know if how far back you have to go to have um, gotten to that, to 60s. a similar crime level. 1963. Yeah, 63. Okay, there you go. Um, uh, but the 90s was was a there was a ton of violence and, um, and a ton of violent crime and the Bay area was not immune from it. In fact, I think it was probably, um, uh, apart from cities like LA, it was probably, I'm, I'm going to speak out of school cause I don't know what the statistics are, but I would imagine that it was much higher in the Bay area than in most, um, even metropolitan regions. It was a very violent time. Um, so, um, I, you know, the Bay, and this was, all, it's interesting because in the nineties, when I grew up, you know, a lot of the, sort of the it wasn't that far it wasn't that far away from the 60s and everybody knows what happened in the 60s in, in Berkeley so there was this kind of like growing up in Berkeley like they're coming up like going to school in Berkeley there were like you know constant there were like peace signs everywhere and like doves with the twig in its mouth and like that kind of like the the a lot of that that hippie um, ethic was still around in Berkeley. That's not the case anymore. It's just much more kind of bougie now. But back then, the the hippie vibe was was everywhere. So you had this kind of like hippie peace love vibe, and there was that you know like I think the the cliche joke that I got sick of hearing was that a probably apocryphal Kurt Vonnegut 
graduation speech quote that was like everybody should move to new york um or to the to new york for a few years but leave before you become too hard and then also live in san francisco for a few years but leave become before you become too soft right that was kind of the 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 stereotype of northern california it was just very soft and hippie-ish and stuff um that was a pretty stark contrast with um especially if you're like a teenager where if you're a teenage um male in, in in the Bay Area at that time, um, like just walking down the street, like this is just a weird, I don't know if this is specific to that time or specific to that age or a combination of both, but it's probably a combination of both. But like, I remember walking down the street and if you made eye contact with a total stranger who you've never seen in your life, you'd like have to choose whether to avert your gaze and feel like a coward or meet their eyes, even just a glance, like, like not like a hostile stare, but just if you looked at their eyes, they might look at you and go, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, swear on. Okay. The fuck are you, you know, what the fuck are you looking at? And then there'd be like a, a potentially like a fight, more likely a beatdown, right? That's crazy to me now thinking that like just walking down the street, you look at somebody, they look at you, and then all of a sudden it's a fight. But that was kind of how it how it was in the nineties. So the Bay Area had this like weird violent edge, and then it went away. Um, you know, for for I think for twenty years, um, and now it feels like it's back. Like the Bay Area has this weird edge to it, in my opinion, which is not a good thing. Like it's like almost like, um, uh, if it, if on the east coast you might get assaulted if you're in the wrong place in the wrong time and somebody tries to like rob you which has happened to me i lived in new york city for a couple of times and was robbed twice mm. um but it was just like breaking you for your wallet or whatever in the bay area back then and now again there's this and i think actually it's like this in new york now and um and we you know this has been very much in the news with that subway attack but like there's a decent chance you might get assaulted by someone who's just insane mm-hmm. and um and like you know uh there's like you have to there's this this weird kind of this edge that mixes this kind of like um mental illness with this um just kind of like a anti-social mentality Again, I'm like I, I'm. This is not. I'm not speaking in the clearest manner because this is all just kind of riffing. But like, but like that. I feel like that that ambiance is kind of back again, um, and it's connected with the times we're living through. But also the vast open air drug market in San Francisco, um, which the city refuses to shut down, and that has kind of had these ripple effects throughout the Bay Area. And then Oakland has just always been, you know, uh, a, a pretty violent city. I think it's the 13th most violent city in the country right now. Um, so, but then that, those are also uh, related because the drug dealers who sell drugs in the Tenderloin all live in Oakland. In fact, they live like a, probably an eight minute drive from me right now. Um, so there's organized crime. Um, there's um, There's this kind of like, honor culture kind of thing which came from the south this like uh this like you know somebody talks to you the right wrong way the disrespect thing that's everywhere but i think it's even more prevalent here than than in most places outside of the south there's that and then there's just like rampant drug addiction and mental illness so all those things combined feel and feel you know make it feel like a very kind of it feels like the social fabric is unraveling a little bit Mm. 
And I mean, I think that San Francisco and the Bay Area in general is a particularly strange place for it to be unraveling because you have such a stark contrast between the people that are working in tech and the massive salaries that they're making and the way that they they maintain these sort of walled gardens of their fancy neighborhoods, while on the outside you have these ramshackle, really beat-down areas. And so I wonder if you have much of a sense for the the way that the insular nature of the tech community has been yeah. playing into this. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. So first of all, um, the disorder is, um, is most prevalent in sort of the mid-market area of San Francisco, just south of the financial district, mm-hmm. um, which is south of market and the tenderloin. But it percolates um, into almost every neighborhood, maybe that's overstating it, but into a lot of neighborhoods in um, in San Francisco. So for example, my friend, the reporter Lee Fong, was just, uh, uh, just tweeted about this, and I think he's got a piece coming out about it soon, about a friend of his who lives in the Mission in Dolores Heights, which is a, a desirable area. It's right down, he, he lived right down the street from where Mark Zuckerberg once owned a, a mansion. Um, the mansion by San Francisco standards. Um, hold on one second. Something crazy just okay. happened to the audio. My audio just went down by like half. Did you? Actually- okay. Yeah. And I'm, oh, I, sorry, I, I can't sorry. see you by the way. I've no, got no, a screensaver no. I'm looking at. Oh, that's enough? totally fine. Yeah, it's okay. Sorry. Sorry. Continue. So your friend, uh, he, he had a place next to Zuckerberg. Yeah. Or near Zuckerberg's um, former home. And, uh, and he has had, and so Lee reported on this. He's had, this guy has had, He's doing a um, renovation of his home, and he's had the the, the work site uh, of his house um, burglarized now eight times, um, and uh, and and I think in total because I think he was burglarized a couple times before that, so he's been burglarized ten times at this point. Um, so like um, so the, so the disorder is you know, not restricted to the tenderloin and south of market. Um, but then the whole thing about the, to the contrast between the tech um, workers and um, sort of the lumpen proletariat in San Francisco it was kind of a pre-pandemic thing because a lot of the tech industry has now left um, because of work from home. Um, there are, um, there is some tech returning now because of the AI revolution. So there's like all these AI startups. So apparently there's like some people coming back into San Francisco, but a huge amount of the tech um, workers left the city when they, when they were able to work from home because like they're paying exorbitant prices in a city with a, with, with a declining quality of life. It doesn't make sense. So when they had the opportunity to not have to clock into the office, they left. And now San Francisco has like vacancy rates in its um, office buildings approaching like 40%. Um, and uh, and so that's another fiscal crisis around the corner for San Francisco. Um, so now it's kind of like now that a lot of the tech stuff is like, you know, a few years ago, we were complaining about all these like, you know, uh, annoying pop bougie pop up restaurants. And it's like weird to think that was that was even a complaint, you know. Um, fancy coffee places popping up like that's a sign of vibrancy even if it's also a sign of gentrification now it's like you know those complaints aren't there anymore the complaints are you know people smoking fentanyl in front of your garage um, living out of a tent you know uh, prostituting young women out of that same tent just like just insane stories of just this kind of mad max level social decay and do you think that that's a result of 
the road to hell is paved in good intentions kind of policies where people are trying to help the homeless population, but they're not there. It seems like a confusion between the concepts of homelessness and drug addiction, right. something like that. Uh, yeah, I think homelessness is a misnomer um, because a lot, first, first of all, because it's an addiction crisis and this is a big debate that, you know, me and Michael have with sort of the harm reduction world um, crowd that says that homelessness is a problem of lack of housing, which I fundamentally reject that argument. I think that what we're dealing with is an addiction crisis. In fact, um, you know, a lot of the addicts in the Tenderloin actually have homes. Um, there are those, for example, like a friend of mine named Tom Wolf, who was um, an addict in the Tenderloin for a number of months after he um, got addicted to, I think, Vicodin from a surgery and then graduated to popping Oxy and then heroin and then fentanyl and all that stuff. And he was, you know, paying a mor- mortgage, or at least at that point, his wife was paying a mortgage at his house in Daly City, which is kind of a working class suburb or middle class suburb of San Francisco, of San Francisco while living, you know, sleeping in a doorway in the Tenderloin. Um, there are other p- people who, you know, come from um, out of state or from elsewhere in California who ha- who are young people who have parents who want them to come home. You know, they have a home to go to. Um, but the reason why they're sleeping on the street in the Tenderloin is because um, if they so when they sober up, they go into withdrawal. They have to be within like a five minute walk of a dealer when they start getting dope sick. Um, so it's not practical for them to go and sleep in their bedroom, you know, in the East Bay, or let alone, you know, out of state, um, uh, uh, because they're because they're addicted um, and they need to get drugs on demand. Or else they get sick. So it's an addiction crisis. The homelessness thing is is a misnomer, in my opinion. Um, that's what we're dealing with. But drugs have always been around, right? I mean, uh, cocaine, heroin, meth. Like I remember, I went to school in San Diego, and El Centro, I think, was the meth capital of the country, right mm-hmm. around two thousand six. And so it's like mm-hmm. it's not like the drugs are are new, but it seems like this has reached a fever pitch that wasn't there before and well, it I, seems like there's it's become a magnet too right like it's I, I always to been live, a magnet like kids would kids would come to california from all over the place that's what i was gonna say though that might be playing into why it's such a focal point i mean when i lived i lived over by the hate like on the inner in the inner sunset mm-hmm. and there was just always a stream of kids that were tearing up the hate and always camped out there and none of them were from there they were all yeah runaways from around the country and i guess what the question i'm trying to ask is like this seems like a problem that's been in san francisco for a long time like i grew up there we moved there Mm -hmm. in 97 and so my family would always go to the san francisco library because it was the only library in the region that had russian language books and so we'd go Mm -hmm. there we'd pile in the car we'd go to the civic center we'd park there and it was always this kind of thing of you know my parents would be kind of corralling us to get from the civic center parking lot to the library and mm-hmm. there was always a sense of just, oh man, this is kind of crazy. And yeah. then we'd, you know, go back to the suburbs or whatever, but it wasn't in the newspapers. Like it wasn't this fever pitch of San Francisco is dying, even though right. it was still there. And so I wonder what is the shift that accounts for the way that people are talking about it now versus 20 years ago? So first of all, yeah, I agree. I was also there, lived in San Francisco for about six years um, at the beginning of the century, around like 2000 to 2006. And, um, you know, when Gavin Newsom was mayor, he was running on 
you know, fixing the homelessness problem, right? He's been, Gavin Newsom has built a political career for 20 years on promising to fix the homelessness problem in San Francisco and then in California. Um, so yeah, it was there and it was in the addiction crisis then as well. Um, and uh, and um, so the, so you're right that the problem has been in San Francisco for a long time. It has gotten much, much worse. Um, and I think that's a combination of factors. So first of all, the drugs have gotten a lot worse. I mean, there's fentanyl that wasn't around then. Um, and the meth has gotten way worse. Um, it used to be made of pseudoephedrine, um, which, you know, you get from, um, from, uh, from cough medicine. Um, and then when they put import controls on that, you know, first of all, they restricted it. If you go to the, if you go to the, um, uh, drugstore to get that stuff, you have to give them your phone number and address and name and show your ID and stuff. Um, but also, um, they put import controls on it, which were actually effective. Um, and so then they, this, I think this Mexican chemist came up with a method or actually resurfaced an, an old method of making meth, which didn't involve using pseudoephedrine and um, which makes the meth much more, much stronger, I believe more addictive. Um, and then also darker, like, Meth used to be a party drug, right? You'd like do it with your friends and you'd go clubbing or whatever. You'd stay up all night chatting and stuff, kind of like cocaine. Um, now you do it like a lot of people just do it by themselves. Um, so it becomes this like, like very, like a less social drug and an antisocial drug because it literally drives you psychotic. Um, so this new P2P method of making meth has the side effect of drawing people, driving people into psychosis and, um, and potentially into permanent schizophrenia. Um, so the drugs are way worse. Um, and then also just the social policy of San Francisco. I mean, this stuff aggregates over time, but like people come to San Francisco now, like I think 20 years ago, young people would come to San Francisco because it had this kind of like, you know, it's like this, I don't know. It had a reputation, right? There's the California dream. You like people from the East coast would just speak in these rhapsodic terms about California that me as somebody who grew up in California never really understood um, uh, that appeal. Um, but, uh, but, but, um, but now people come because it's incredibly easy to get drugs and the, and the police will never arrest you. I mean, that's why people, if you're addicted to drugs and you live in Arkansas or St. Louis, um, you know, there's every reason to locate to, take a Greyhound bus and relocate to San Francisco. You can get drugs much more easily. The, um, you do not have to deal with being hassled by the police. You can get three hot meals a day. Um, you can camp wherever you want to. You know, it's like, it's it's a place to go and be addicted to drugs. Um, so there's been this magnetic pull um, that has just compounded the crisis. And um, to, to answer your earlier question about this being sort of the road to hell paved by good intentions, I would say yes and no in the sense that it's on the, on the surface. Yes. I would say that there's all these like social policies in San Francisco, which are um, enacted the name of compassion, um, which become, which have compounded the problem. But I've become deeply skeptical that the real, that compassion, is really the driving motivation. I do believe that the people who are in that industry, sort of the homelessness industrial complex, believe that they are motivated by compassion and they see themselves as these kind of heroic figures who are, um, you know, very Jesus-like, um, you know, dealing with a most destitute population that nobody wants to deal with and, um, you know, kind of see their lives in that, in that, in that, in those, um, 
terms, but I think that it has become an industry like any other industry. Um, you have this math, like the homelessness services industry in San Francisco is a, like a billion dollar industry, like a, annually um, in terms of annual expenditures, or at least that's how much San Francisco is, um, is spending close to that much after they passed Prop C a number of years ago, which taxed huge corporations to put more money into this sector. Um, and like any other sector, you know, if you have a home, if you have a direct services organization, you have a payroll, you have rent, you have office expenses, you have very mundane considerations, and it becomes. If you've ever worked in a for an NGO, you know that you know you spend half the time worrying about fulfilling your mission, and the other half of the time worrying about um, next year's budget, like where the contracts are going to come from, or the donations are going to come from, or um, you know, however you fund your 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 nonprofit. They're just constantly worrying about um, where how you're going to beat next next year's payroll, um, and, and it's so, the same thing like, with the scientific industrial complex too. Right, Academically, right. I mean, it was it's, everybody realizes that who's working in it as well. Right, it's, it's the exact same dynamic. So where scientists will just like you know do the same experiment year in year out, tweaking one variable each time because they know they can get you know an NSF grant um, uh, by doing so. By the same measure, it's like what it does is it's not that it's it's not that like the people who run these organizations are sitting around like rubbing their hands together and trying to you know um, uh, uh, become rich and buy a million dollar mansion. It's not like that. It's like what it does is the concern with meeting your bottom line needs, the mundane bottom line needs of your organization, leads you to um, uh, to sort of adopt certain ideologies which don't challenge that bottom line. You know, it makes it easier to believe, to to adopt a certain set of beliefs about what works and what doesn't, and easier to reject any argument that might threaten to make your organization's life quite complicated. So specifically, what I mean is this harm reduction ideology, which says that um, we should not um, sweep tent encampments, we should um, we should not uh, coerce or even pressure people to go into treatment. We shouldn't arrest drug dealers, like all all this stuff, which is basically like we should have more of the status quo. And eventually, you know, somehow, if you Narcan enough people, then people are gonna, then all of the addicts are eventually gonna like wake up and decide to get clean or just build more housing, and then people will move into those housing and some into those houses and somehow stop using drugs, I guess. I don't, like the theory, the philosophy is totally incoherent. Well, let's like, make a, hold on, I want to hear, I want to hear a steel man of that perspective. Mm-hmm. So like in the best light possible, right? Because it's an organization, it has a mission, like you said yourself, the people that are in the organization are are genuinely trying to do good. Well, and it seems so, like psychologically you'd have to, right? Like you have yeah, to like, er- erect just, some ideological backbone for your daily existence. And you believe mm-hmm. that what you're doing is going to fix the problem. And so if you were to represent their argument in the strongest possible light, what is the arc by which they they purport that their actions will solve the crisis? What they say is that um, the Bay Area has a housing shortage, that California has a housing shortage, which is true, um, that um, that the nimbyism of California and the the zoning restrictions, the opposition to to um, developing housing has made rents so expensive that people are um, evicted. 
um, or you know they lose their job and they can't pay rent. They're thrown out of housing. They can't afford to get into new housing, and then they end up on the street. Um, a lot of those people are you know, have been poor for a long time. And so they've suffered a lifetime of trauma. Um, and then when they get out on the street and they're homeless, they suffer yet more trauma. And they may have been doing substances before, but the, really the driving, re, re, like the, the, the reason they're homeless is for economic reasons. And when you're homeless in order to cope with your trauma, you self-medicate through more drugs. So yes, a lot of these people are addicted to drugs, but that is not the cause of the problem. That is a symptom of the problem. That's the argument. And then there's like the empirical evidence that's brought to bear are things like in West Virginia, there's, you know, a massive um, uh, addiction problem, but they don't have the homelessness. Um, they don't have people like just intense out on the street like we do in, 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 in California because there isn't a housing crisis there because the housing prices aren't out of control. So that would be like, you know, one of the, the, one of the, one of the talking points that I've heard a million times. They also don't have those West Virginia winners. That's true. Or we don't, uh, down in the Bay area. Yeah. And by the way, I don't know much about West Virginia, but my guess is that they also just, I mean, they don't allow tent encampments, right? Like you cannot compare the Bay Area or LA to, or Portland or Seattle to a city in which they just don't tolerate it. If you don't tolerate tent encampments, then people get pushed into shelters and they're still homeless, um, but they're sheltered homeless. Um, So, you know, that's an obvious variable. I mean, the, the problem of homelessness on the West Coast is kind of, is, is also a long-term one, because I remember that there was, like, I don't know, back in the 90s, maybe, it was, like, Vegas was putting homeless people on buses and just giving them tickets to, like, come to California, and so it's always been a place where it's, it's there's a large accumulation of traveling people that end up there, and so... If you ha- no yeah. one's coming to West Virginia as a destination, and so maybe if everybody was like, "Oh, hey, they're they're super lax about enforcing laws," maybe they would go to West Virginia. Yeah, yeah, but, um, yeah. I was going to say that you know the people in the hate that you were referring to earlier are are actually migrants. My is my understanding. They basically like the, those those kids will go from. LA to San Francisco to Portland to Seattle. There's like kind of a route that they go up and down the West Coast, like on like seasonally. Um, For sure. Uh, but- but yeah, there's a there's a great book by Sam Quinones um, about the fentanyl crisis that points to I think it's in Kentucky. There's a city where I think it's in Ohio. Uh, we actually we had him on the show. Actually, it was oh, quite a story. Okay. Yeah, my dad's whole so family's at- from down there, so it was really close to yeah. home. Yeah, so there's a, there's a town that has um, that addicts um, uh, uh, are drawn or converge on in the way they do in San Francisco, except for the opposite reason, which is that they have they've put up such an effective treatment infrastructure that people are flocking there to go get treatment and get unaddicted, um, whereas San Francisco is exactly the inverse. And so what are so what is the arc of the policy that has led to this because presumably the people that are in charge of the city they have a lot of money at their disposal and they don't want to be living in a city that's filled with homelessness and crime because like you said with Mark Zuckerberg's house it trickles down eventually to you and so clearly the people that are in charge have have a sense that it's not working so what are the policies that have been enacted that have led to this and why like who's who's benefiting um so well you have to question the assumption that if residents of san francisco who are voters are unhappy with the situation that that necessarily means that the city government is going to be responsive to them are you you, hold on are you saying that there's a breakdown between the city's voters ability to elect somebody who's going to actually deal with the problem yes 
Um, like it just seems uh, like it seems like the, like I would could, if I could typify the a lot of your work in general, at least that I've seen, we're talking about industrial capture of the government in yes. general. And this yes. is just another industry, just like the censorship industrial complex. Like these are people just making a living. And then they kind of like map these narratives to soothe their psychology on top of it. Yes. And they, and, and the, and the more money that, you know, the more effective they are, the more powerful they are politically, right? The more money that they, that they're able to steer to themselves, you know, a lot of this, like it builds up their political capital. They are a very, you know, uh, powerful um, uh, political force in San Francisco. So while your average voter, um, is unsatisfied with the situation your average voter isn't particularly well organized that's changing now in san francisco there are these sort of like um uh, grassroots organizations which are most more centrist in their political orientation that are organizing around doing something around this so i do think that there is going to be a voter backlash which will have um well it's already happening that there's a that there's been you know a, um a, a political efficacy and consequences to voter dissatisfaction. But the, the, the force that's pushing in the other way is that, that sort of thick dermis of, um, of uh, homeless services and activist organizations that have a huge amount of, of clout in City Hall. And I think that this starts to kind of tie into the Twitter files a little bit, because you said that you didn't expect to find a connection, but that you did eventually, where... I can kind of code what happened during the COVID pandemic as being an over-harnessing of people's desire to care for others, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. the largest and strongest narrative was that you have to do lockdowns, everyone across the board, no matter what their health status, has to get vaccinated. And the, the, the reason for that is because what you're going to do is you're going to protect others and you're going to show that you care for them it's a compassion-based narrative and it's compassion-based marketing you know job yeah hard to argue with mm -hmm. that and so mm -hmm. it seems like the same thing that drove the social dynamics around covid is also mm -hmm. driving the social dynamics around homelessness because we lived in portland for a while and it was the same sort of thing like everybody in the city is really unhappy with the fact that there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of drug use, there's a lot of just destitution, but no one wants to be the heartless person who's like, well, we have to get rid of it because mm -hmm. there's there's a strong drive to treat, and I mean, obviously people who are homeless deserve compassion and there's terrible, terrible tragedies and traumas that people are playing out, but it's like, it seems like there's a disconnect between the political will to do something and people's compassion, which is that they don't want to do something that other people are telling them is going to cause harm. Yeah. Um, there's a paternalism, which is kind of um, uh, common to all of those things. The, the, the homelessness um, problem and the, the the drug the street addiction problem in in um, an increasing number of American cities. I would actually um, I would call it a maternalism. A maternalism, yeah, yeah. I think I've actually made that analogy myself in in a piece I, I wrote. Um, yeah, it's sort of a maternal paternal, yeah, maternalism. Um, the COVID, so the, the the drug addiction crisis, the COVID um, response, and um, this the censorship industrial complex. It's all they're all they all employ the same sort of lexicon of harm reduction. 
and um, and of protecting people essentially from themselves. And I think that's common to all three of them. And so in terms of something like the, because I know that y- you and uh, Michael Schellenberger have reported on the, the open air drug markets, what is the policy decisions there that have led to open use of narcotics in terms of harm reduction? Like what's the, what is the possible rationale that leads you to construct a place that's an open air drug market in the hopes of reducing the impact of drugs? Yeah. So the the rationale on behalf of not shutting down the open air drug market is um, what well, is based on a lie. First of all, um, the lie is that um, the drug dealers out on the corners in the tenderloin are human trafficking victims. Um, so the drug dealers in the tenderloin are all from Honduras. Um, they're all Honduran nationals. Um, when I say all, I mean all of the ones who are supplied by the cartel, who are the professional drug dealers, who are not using drugs. So there's like, yes, they're like, the, I, I make this caveat because the harm reduction people will constantly say, oh, no, drug dealers are just drug users who are just, you know, selling drugs on the side to support their own habit. And I'm sure that those people do exist. Um, and they are a insignificant part of the drug market in San Francisco. The the driving force of the drug market, of the open-air drug market, you can see, you can just drive through and you see dozens of um, young men um, stand, standing on, on these blocks working like eight or 12 hour shifts. Um, they have lunch delivered for the, to, to them. Like the, 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 their, the cartel, I don't know who organizes it. Maybe they organize it, but they have um, cars come in, like people taking pictures of it. They pop the trunk and they hand out sandwiches so they don't have to leave their post. Um, they're not using drugs. They're not addicted to drugs. If they are become addicted to drugs, the cartel will cut them off of their supply um, because they're unreliable, obviously. Um, they're, they look fairly healthy you know they're, they're they they don't look anything like the the junkies they're out they're full-time workers and they're making a lot of money um they are uh, the 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 claim is that they're human trafficking victims who have um, family back home in Honduras who are being threatened and that if they're um and that if they uh stop selling then their family um, will be killed or they'll be harmed or whatever. I've interviewed a number of people about that. There's no, no evidence that that's the case. These guys, um, they are smuggled in. So they're human trafficking victims in that sense, but they're voluntary human trafficking victims. The cartel offers them a job. To me, it's kind of like when I was uh, a teenager, there are these jobs on fishing vessels in Alaska and you could go up there to like spend a summer on a fishing vessel and make thousands of dollars. It's kind of like that. Like the cartel comes and says, do you want to make money quick? They'll sm- they smuggle you, you in. You have you do have to pay the cartel back for the transportation cost for basically paying off the coyote, but you, you can usually use, do that within a couple of weeks. It's like $15,000 or something. These guys are making like $1,000 plus a day. Um, so the police have raided their, 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 um, their stash houses, their, their, their homes, their apartments, which are on International Boulevard and in the Fruitvale in Oakland. You know, they found thousands of dollars worth of like $90,000 worth of cash in a closet, you know, all these Game Boys, like luxury clothes, all this stuff. The, some of these guys, like Tom Wolf, who's the guy I mentioned before, will tell you that like he, there was one dealer who was like was showing pictures on his um, phone of the, the of the huge mansion that he was built by Honduran standards mansion that he was building in Honduras that was under construction. They was paying for this is like not you don't need to 
force people by threat of violence to sell drugs in the tenderloin. It's an easy job and you make tons of money. Um, so the, but the, 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 the claim is, you know, if you shut them down, then they're going to have a family killed in Honduras, which even if that was true, which it's not, it's like, so then is the claim that in order to protect these guys and their families, we have to allow them to continue to sell fentanyl and meth to kids to, 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 you know, to, I should say Americans, including kids, um, you know, that's, that's ridiculous. And to like murder people because there's like gunfights and there's people who are murdered by machete and stuff in, in, in these open air drug markets. Like we're supposed to permit this stuff because these guys are, you know, being threatened by the cartel. Just, it makes no sense. It's a totally incoherent argument. Well, okay, so I want to pull on this the the murder statistic because I was looking at this and like the murder statistics in San Francisco are actually pretty low relative to mm -hmm. historical trends. So I said earlier that it was uh, 1963 that was the peak. It was I was wrong. It was mm -hmm. 1977, and so 1977 there was 142 homicides, mm -hmm. and this year I think we're up a little bit. Uh, we're I think we're above 2019 levels, which is 41 homicides. Mm -hmm. And so the the number of of murders, I mean, obviously, we I'd like to live in a world where there are no murders, but mm -hmm. this is still like much lower than historical levels. Yeah, the problem the the crime issue in San Francisco is not murders. There are murders in San Francisco in the open air drug market. There are horrific murders in the open air drug market. Um, what but, kind of stuff? Uh, what kind but, of stuff have you been reporting on? Like what have you seen? Well, this isn't one that I reported on. This was was report was underreported, and this is like trigger warning because this is just uh, really heinous um, death. But a girl, there's a 16 year old girl addict who was um, who OD'd to death while being raped um, last year in South of Market. Um, so um, she OD'd. So one might say that's not a murder. I would say you know the case could be made that, that every OD is a murder. Um, but they're also like, you know, there, there's, there's a, there's, there's been gunfights, like dealers shooting at each other um, in the Tenderloin. I interviewed a guy who lived in a, a, a building in South of Market where the, the residents of the building had like a Slack group where they would trade messages about what was going on outside with messages such as, and this is, I'm quoting him saying this, Oh, the dealers are carrying machetes today. Oh, the dealers are carrying guns today. Be careful. Um, so, but the problem, but you know, it's an organized crime racket in San Francisco. So, like the 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 well, so in in the nineties, you had huge amounts of violence because of the crack cocaine trade, and there were warring drug gangs. And so that drove a lot of the violence was was gangs that were competing for turf and going to war with each other. That's not the case in San Francisco. There is a, you know, there's there's effectively one drug gang that 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 um, runs the open air drug market. Um, so you don't have. Well, I, I did mention, you know, um, uh, gun fights in, in the Tenderloin that does happen, but it's not an endemic thing. Um, these, by the way, I don't want to bore you with too much detail, but like. I'm describing it as a drug gang, but these guys actually work for themselves. They're basically entrepreneurs, but they're supplied by the same cartel. So they're not formally a gang, but they work in concert with each other. If somebody like tries to rob one of the drug dealers, the, the other guys will jump in on behalf of that drug dealer and like beat them. They look out for each other, but they, but they actually work for themselves anyway. And I'm um, sorry, are the, the, these are the Hondurans? Yeah. Okay. Um, 
So, uh, so you don't have, uh, so like the, the, when you have one organized crime syndicate, which has a monopoly, um, you're not going to have a lot of violence. Um, the violence is mostly on this side of the Bay in Oakland and it's not, uh, and most of it is not driven by the drug trade. So like when people talk about the, about San Francisco's low level of violence, first of all, there's a reason, there's reasons for that. Second of all, it's kind of an unfair comparison when you compare it to like New York or Chicago, because San Francisco, because in, on the East coast or in the Midwest, the entire Bay area would be one city. Um, but just, this is how it works in California. You know, the Bay Area has multiple counties and um, dozens of cities. So like, but it's one metro area. And just like in New York, you know, the, the murder rate in Manhattan is going to be much lower than in the South Bronx. Well, Oakland is, Oakland and Richmond um, and Vallejo um, are, and parts of the South Bay are effectively those kind of outer boroughs. Um, so you have to kind of take that into account as well. Um, so the murder rate in Oakland is, is, um, is quite high. Um, it's like, you know, uh, it's approaching nineties levels. And so the, there's there's this tremendous amount of violence and the people who are living among it recognize how twisted the situation is and the there's money in politics that prevents them from being able to elect officials that are able to deal with it and so what is the what is the way forward um so first of all i think that the 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 sort of in industry capture of San Francisco has been an impediment to electing um, politicians, political leaders who will deal with it, but it's not stopping it or, or I'm not sure what word you use, but I'm just um, kind of nitpicking here, but like there, the, 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 there have been politicians who were elected recently on the platform of dealing with this problem. So the DA is the most obvious example. You know, Chase Boudin, the prior DA, who refused to prosecute anything, was um, tossed out and replaced by Brooke Jenkins, who ran on um, doing something about this. Um, the current mayor, who I think is highly ineffective, um, but nevertheless, she's um, been responsive to um, to that same um, sort of political will on the part of the voters has been promising to do something about the open air drug market. Um, you know, the governor of California is sending the national guard in to deal with it. Um, there was, um, a Matt Dorsey is a supervisor in South of the market who was elected, um, about, you know, he, he himself is a former addict and he doesn't buy the harm reduction stuff. And he also used to work for the police department and, he, um, he was elected in on doing something about this issue. There was a election in, the Sunset um, District of San Francisco, which is overwhelmingly um, Chinese, where the Chinese incumbent, who is like a 60s era leftist, um, was thrown out and a, a white guy was um, was uh, was voted in by a overwhelmingly Chinese electorate because he was promising to do something about not just um the drug issue, but also the attacks on Asian Americans um, uh, in San Francisco. So there has been um, quite a bit of political change at the hands of the voters recently. And so I think the tide is turning in that direction right now. And so in, in Oakland, I should add that it's going the opposite direction. 
Yeah, I'm um, trying to I'm tr- I'm trying to find the I'm trying to find rates for for Oakland while while you're talking. I mean, I mean I, I've personally been robbed. I, I've been in a holdup in o- Oakland one time, and one of my good friend, one of my best friends from Oakland, his father was actually murdered by like some random dudes while he was going for a jog one day. So, my own personal experience is like pretty. You know, completely anecdotal, but my experience being there has been actually pretty sketchy. And um, currently, Oakland, currently the police department in Oakland is on, like as we speak, the police department in Oakland is on a quote unquote no report status, which means that and I'm 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 trying to figure out exactly what that means. Um, I um, once my understanding is that it either means that they only respond to felonies and they will not take um, responses to, I'm sorry, only respond to violent felonies mm. and will not respond to any nonviolent crimes. Or it means that I, I, this is what I heard from a dispatcher I called to, to, to clarify this. And she said that they will only respond to crimes in progress. Mm. So even if it's a violent felony, and by the way, I'm in touch with a guy who was just robbed at gunpoint two days ago, three days ago. I think three days ago now, and as of yesterday at least, he had not yet been contacted by the police despite calling 911 and then calling the police department and then showing up in person at the police department to try to get a report taken. So this guy who robbed him at gunpoint is presumably still out there. Yeah. Oh, we lost your audio. We we lost. We can't hear you. Sorry. Without plates? Oh. And now we got you back. You hear me now? Hello, hello, hello. Uh, so uh, the guy, the guy who robbed him is so, still um, out there. So, oh, we yeah, lost you. Probably robbing other people. Sorry. What the hell, man? I think it's the internet because it looks fine on my end. All right, it's fine now. It's, yeah, it's, it's just coming in and out. I think it was just okay. There's this other edge to it too. Like I, I just it made me think of something. Like I have another friend who got jumped there, and it really kind of derailed his life. Like he he really kind of went in this radicalized. Uh, I don't. I don't even know how to describe it, but it seems like these events really do cause people to lose faith in. I mean, this guy's my friend has lost faith in like civilization as a whole. I think as a result yeah. of this, right? He felt really let down by the entire thing. He actually got jumped in front of a gas station, and like nobody helped him, and the cops obviously, you know, didn't come, and you know, yeah. I, I think there's this other side to this where it's not just the statistics that you might see on the outside it's the downstream effects of people being victims and going off into the world maybe leaving the bay area but then having been sort of radicalized by their experience as victims of of that situation yeah well the reality is i mean you come to understand that you are literally on your own um there's um you know uh like I, I, you probably saw that video where them went viral that made me sick to my stomach. Um, that happened at a sideshow in Oakland, in West Oakland, a few uh, earlier this week. I think it was Sunday. Um, did you guys see this video with this guy who was who threw a bucket at one of the cars, mm, yeah. and then just like the mob descended on him and beat the living pulp out of him? He's like unconscious on the sidewalk, bleeding from his mouth, and then like people are still kicking him. They're picking him up and pulling his pants down, kicking him in the ass. He's it's like this, the guy was like he might be dead at this point. Like I mean, he looked like it was touch and go, um, and it was in the middle of the day. Um, uh, at a sideshow. A sideshow, for those who don't know, is is an Oakland tradition where people take over intersections, just do donuts in the middle of the intersection. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and like 
I I wouldn't be at all surprised if none of these guys get charged with anything. Like that wouldn't surprise me at all. The mayor it took the mayor two days, I think, to make to to even say any to make a statement about it. Well, meanwhile, this video is going viral. And if the video hadn't gone viral, then maybe she wouldn't have even bothered. Um, you know, so it does really feel like I, I if you you know this is a very very left wing uh, area, but like this kind of like Gotham City stuff. Um, you know, the vigilantism that you're seeing now in not just in the Bay Area, all over the place, all these stories, you know, there's the fire commissioner who was assaulted in San Francisco and that was the story. And then it turned out that he was going, potentially somebody who looks like him, at least, he denies it was him, was going out like bear spraying um, homeless people on the street, which sounds awful and it is awful, but also there's, um, you know, there's, there are other people saying, well, you know, a lot of these, these people like harassing the neighborhood, um, like, um, you know, having like um, threatening neighbors. So like there's this kind of vigilantism has started to emerge in the Bay area. And then this stuff that we saw on the subway in New York is another example of the same thing. I'm not condoning any of that stuff. In fact, I think, obviously I think vigilantism is a bad thing, but it's also an, an inevitable thing when people feel like, you know, the, the police are are not going to, like, they're just not going to respond. If your house is robbed, the police just aren't. They, if your house is robbed, eventually the police might come by and take a report. They're not going to do an investigation. If you're robbed, if you're jumped and robbed, the you know, good luck even getting a, getting a police officer out there, let alone, you know, your car gets jacked or your catalytic converter gets jacked or you get jacked for your camera if you're on a news crew. And I say that because there's roving gangs in the Bay Area go and jack up news crews. Um, like there's just, there's not going to be any response. So either you just live with that or you um, take measures to defend yourself. And then we start living in a society, which no progressive would nobody, but especially no progressive would want to live in. We we talk about this all the time where it's one of the things that is inherent to our social contract is that we grant the monopoly of violence to the state. Yeah which is that when bad stuff happens, we have abdicated our responsibility for handling it in order to prevent, you know, blood feuds and, and whatever else for, for rolling out across the landscape. And we're like, okay, we're going to outsource this to the state because the state has the capabilities, it has the will, it has the objectivity that is necessary in order to keep us safe in return for the taxes that we pay, in return for the fact that we do productive work for for the society, whatever. In return for not having to have every single citizen carrying a gun at all times. Yeah, exactly. Right? And so it seems like when people talk about the fabric of civilization unraveling in San Francisco, what they're really talking about is the fact that this monopoly of violence in the hands of the state is starting to unravel because now there isn't someone that you can call whose job it is to keep you safe. Right. And like what happened uh, with my friend, right? As soon as that happened, right? The guy just starts loading loading up on guns. Like that's Yeah, of course. Yeah. That's kind of what happens. Yeah. Um I don't want to sound pedantic, but this happens to be a sort of a hobby horse of mine is that the phrase monopoly of, of violence is actually from and technically what he says is a monopoly on legitimate violence um, because you can't monopolize violence. Obviously, you know, people can go and, you know, punch somebody on the street. The state can't do anything about it, but that violence is considered illegitimate. So the state has a monopoly on the legitimate use of physical force. Um, and that is unraveling as, as well. I mean, you like, if the, the, if the police 
aren't going to enforce social order. This is the long running um, beef that I've had with the defund people. There's this there's this um, sort of fantasy that if you dismantle the police, um, that uh, that and put this stuff in the hands of social workers, that the violent attacks are going to somehow wane. When in fact, what happens is like if you if the state doesn't exercise the legitimate use of force, then other actors come in to fill that void. I mean, this is the the story of pre-Taliban Afghanistan, where you had essentially anarchy, which led to warlordism, um, which led to the Taliban, because the Taliban, as much as, as hor- horrific and dictatorial as they were, provided order and provided the semblance of a state and took it out of the hands of these warlords. You reverse that, you have a dismantling state, and you also have warlordism comes in to, to fill the gaps. I'm not saying that that's where we are in any American city at this point, but like that's what happens. It's not that it's almost like the law of thermo- thermodynamics where, you know, energy is not going to diminish. And I don't know if I'm getting that right. But energy is not diminish volume. It's just going to be shifted out into other arenas. Um, and that's what social disorder looks like. So if the state's not enforcing it, somebody else will. 100%. And there's a lot of stuff that I've read and kind of is in the background here. So we live on the border between Northern California and Southern Oregon. And there's this lore of huge pot farms that are being run by gangs in the woods. And I don't know that that's the case, but it's such a pervasive story among people that I feel like there is... There's, there's a space that most of us operate within, which is that you spend your life surrounded by people that are fundamentally decent and they've bought into the system. You go to work, you go to the stores, you go, you, you, you spend all of your days interacting with people that maintain the social contract of this is how we're going to act, this is what we're going to do. We basically all have this agreement. And yet, underneath that, there's a disc, like you see these social graphs of connection on Twitter. And you're like, oh, all these people are liberal and they're all connected. All these people are on the right and they're connected and there's no communication between them. And I feel like there's a shadow world that operates underneath the radar that when you're talking about what's happening in San Francisco, it's the sort of the the eruption of the shadow world into the visible. But that's just one point in a larger thing that's happening out of view. And so I wonder if you see it as a larger systemic problem or if it's just something that's a one-off that's happening in San Francisco but isn't bigger than that. Oh, I think it's a much larger systemic issue. I think it has to do, I mean, obviously the drug um, issue itself is a global issue. You know, these are precursor chemicals coming from China sent to Mexico where they manufacture fentanyl and smuggle into the United States. But also there's a, you know, there's much larger, larger conversations that we can have about the decline of American empire um, and, um, and the, 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 you know, the, the possibility that America is entering into an era of decadence. And um, I don't know if I even agree with that argument, but it's, it's a, it's, something to think about um as far as the 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 pot farms in the forest that is happening um it's something i've looked into and studied i mean reported on um i reported on this before marijuana was legal um in in humboldt county you know like the 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 um the illegal pot pot grows were mostly um controlled by transnational gangs i think mostly bulgarian gangs um was a big presence in humboldt county um and then it was supposed to be the case that with legalization and government regulation um you know the 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 black market um uh 
growers would be put out of business. Um, that's not, in fact, what happened at all. In fact, it's expanded. The bit. A lot of the cartels who are the Mexican cartels who are growing like Sinaloa that were growing pot in Mexico where the conditions are not as good um, have simply relocated. They've actually expanded their operations um, in in California. Um, and uh, and now Humboldt County is seeing missing persons, um, um, sex trafficking, all of these things that come along with the organized drug trade um, are increasing in Humboldt. And now the, the irony is that the legal industry is now pointing to this and they're saying, um, you need to stop taxing us and you need to start deregulating because the reason why these black market growers are in business is because they don't have to abide by regulations. They don't have to pay taxes so they can undercut the market, which is true. But then the whole thing becomes like, well, wasn't the whole promise of legalizing weed in the first place that you would be able to have like, you know, safe, regulated um, uh, 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 product? which pays taxes to the government and therefore gives back to society. That was the whole argument. And now we've gone full circle to like now the, the essentially the weed lobby is saying, stop taxing us and deregulating us to shut down the, the, the black market growers. When the, the whole concept was that by regulating and taxing it, you would shut down the black market growers. Anyway, that's kind of a tangent, but, um, but, um, but I don't know what my point is. <laughs> well, I <laughs> just, just pointed that out. I, I think that it points to it being this really intractable problem, right? Because you have so many different things that are converging to create this mess. Number one, you have the the this ideological harm reduction maternal state, which is that we have to protect people from themselves. Number mm-hmm. two, you do have a pretty significant housing crisis in California. Like I have, I have friends and family that are looking for housing, and it's like. Un- unbelievable what is available in the bay area at what oh, price yeah. points like yeah a crummy crummy apartment he, my brother sent me this photograph of an apartment that uh had basically like a fridge and then a single chair dining table that was attached to the fridge and <laughs> then uh the like the range was right next to that so you'd eat like in between the fridge and the range and it was like three thousand dollars a month Jesus. <laughs> and so it's like the price point for stuff is crazy. So maternal state, insane housing market, an inexhaustible appetite for drugs. Mm-hmm. Like people yeah. love taking drugs. Like this is just a fundamental thing that people love to do. So you're not going to be able to get rid of it because. Well, the drugs are getting more tasty. Too. The drugs are getting more tasty. And they're not the same. They're not like the, the hate Ashbury drugs, right? These aren't like drugs that make you see God or something, right? Yeah, well, I mean, mm-hmm. it's also like the fact that, you know, you, you think about the ditch weed of the 70s and the THC content of it versus the 99% THC dab or shatter, something that somebody's smoking now. And it's not the same substance. It's a pharmaceutical grade, just yeah. obliteration hard device. Drug. Yeah, exactly. It's turned into mm-hmm. a hard drug. And so then you have the fact that these cartels are operating with impunity because there's not enough, because the maternal state is defunding police for various good reasons, because the police, I mean, God, our police department here, we drove past, they were like demonstrating their armored truck. It's a town of mm-hmm. 20,000 people. Why do they need an, it was, it was a military vehicle. And mm-hmm. so there's this, there's all these forces that are playing on each other to create the crisis. And it just seems that the, the real I see the root of it being that people are living lives that they don't really like and they want to escape from. And so it is powering this massive machine of human misery. And so Mm -hmm. how do you 
while the government is clamping down and this gets into the censorship thing, right? Where it's like, if you can actually talk about things and start to understand cause and effect and understand the, the forces that are pressing on you from all sides, then you can make a plan for getting out from under them. But we have all these things pressing on us. And at the same time, we also have the inability to actually figure out what is going on because you can't trust statistics, you can't trust government advisories, you can't trust industry, you can't trust scientific studies. Like, There's a few states, right? Example states that have made serious progress on homelessness from what I understand. Which states are those? I'm just thinking of like the Netherlands. Oh, right. Um, I thought you were going to say Houston because there was a big New York Times article about it, which I, I, I don't actually buy. Um, although I have, I can't speak on it with any, I haven't reported on it, so I can't speak on it with a lot of um, uh, authority. But it, but yeah, in a lot of these European countries, um, you know, what Michael and I have advocated for San Francisco is, is just the like the Nordic model. It's what they do in um, in a lot of European countries, like um, you know. Um, uh, like Amsterdam, where uh, they don't tolerate open-air drug dealing. Um, they don't tolerate tent encampments. They do push people into um, into recovery. Um, you know, uh, Portugal is another example that every, it's weird, Portugal, everybody points to Portugal, like the, the harm reduction people point to, to Portugal and say that they want the Portugal model um, because it's uh, based on decriminalization. But what they are, but Portugal doesn't do it at all what San Francisco does. Um, Portugal does not tolerate open drug use. Portugal doesn't even tolerate drug use. Like they don't criminalize it. They're not going to throw you in, in prison for it, but they are going to push you into recovery. Um, and that's happening also in um, in Alberta, Canada, um, uh, which is, uh, and the opposite is happening in, in British Columbia. So that we've got kind of two test cases in, in, in Canada to compare. Um, but, um, but yeah, there are very straightforward evidence-based things that you can do to deal with addiction. Um, but it's not what's happening in San Francisco or Portland or Seattle. Or and it's kind of ironic because those two places have long been, say, uh, Portugal and the Netherlands, mm. you know, those have long been the places where you could buy drugs or you could do drugs uh, and not end up in prison, essentially. Yeah. But that There's... they would have, you know, I guess it makes sense that they would have had the longest time to experiment with, you know, the fallout from that and how to work around it. Yeah, it's ironic because right now Amsterdam um, is uh, so. There was a proposal from this um, state assembly member in San Francisco a couple of months ago um, to start legalizing pot cafes in San Francisco um, as a as a I guess a response to the you know kind of the uh, bottom falling out of San Francisco's economy, um, and at the same time. Amsterdam is trying to clamp down on its pot cafes and restrict its, um, like stop allowing people to smoke cannabis on the street, um, restrict the hours of which these cafes can operate because, um, the cafes have been, uh, a gateway to, first of all, it's a, you know, it's drug tourism. And when you bring in drug tourists, they don't stop with cannabis, um, nor do they stop with drugs. They also want prostitutes and that's also, you know, legal and regulated in Amsterdam, but it leads to, you know, it's like basically like a, a kind of a, a hedonistic criminal tourist, um, uh, destination 
destination. Um, and, um, and that leads to all kinds of problems. But the pot cafes are leading to more hard drug use. And the hard drug use is leading to um, organized crime operations, um, um, uh, drug dealing operations on the street. That leads to violent crime. Um, it's also leading, I believe, to, to increased homelessness. And all these other problems that come from the pot cafes are like, at least that's, that's one vector that's, um, that's aggravating the, this stuff. Um, and so Amsterdam is going the opposite direction while San Francisco is saying, hey, let's do what Amsterdam did, and, you know, mm. double down on the stuff. Yeah, tour, I mean, tourism, tourists don't really take care of places anyways. I think that's a huge problem, regardless of yeah. what brand of tourism you operate in. Yeah. Um, How does, I, oh, go ahead. I really want to make sure we have time to talk about the Twitter files. Yeah, that's what I'm, I was going to go to. I'm too. most interested. Do you mind if I use the bathroom really quickly, though, before we do that? Do you do you go mind for waiting it. for just a second? I'm sorry. So what is what has been the most surprising thing that you've come across while you've been while you've been reporting? Like, what is the thing that you came across and you're like, I cannot believe that nobody knows about this? Uh, well, two things: um, the Twitter files um, and this architecture of power and control um, that we're uncovering uh, is shocking. Um, and the other thing is um, sex trafficking of minors which is something that we uh, reported on. Like you talk about like, and that was again in San Francisco, not that it's restricted to San Francisco, but like if you talk about like the dark stuff that's happening in San Francisco, the drugs and homelessness, um, you know, it gets worse than that. Like there's, in this case, it was a 14 year old who started getting pimped out when she was 13 years old by MS 13 gang members just brazenly out of uh, apartments in San Francisco. And when these private investigators who we were um, uh, sort of tagging along with, um, we weren't there the night that they did this, but they, at one, this is before we were reporting on it, but at one point they called SFPD and they actually went down to the station to get SFPD to come out because they had eyes on her. They knew she was in that, um, it, she, they knew exactly where she was and they called SFPD to come and extricate her from being sex trafficked and SFPD told them they were too busy and didn't send anybody even after they went down to the, to the precinct. These are former cops themselves. Um, so this stuff is being tolerated. And just done out in the open. But okay, so the the thing about it being tolerated and being out in the open is that it doesn't like it doesn't make sense to me. Is it like a lack of resources on the part of the police department? Is it a reaction to? Because I feel like I, I kind of have a model for societies that are that's almost like biological and and like immune based, where mm -hmm. if you have something that there's the tide turns against police departments there is a tendency to view police as being on the whole more negative than positive then the police department is then kind of just like all right we'll show yeah. you what it's like without us that that's the cynical way of looking at it which has been a, a you know, this is called the ferguson effect um because the, where the in ferguson you know the cops pulled back after um after the black lives matter um protests um happened there riots um and uh, the cynical way of looking at it is that they were just like basically seeking vengeance on the public and some of that may be true um but i've looked into this and reported on it and um and for the reality of just being a cop is that you don't actually at least in california 
California, you don't have to respond to any misdemeanor calls. It's like, um, like if there's a, you know, if there's a crime in progress, um, it's up to the officer as to whether they need to want to get out of the car or not. And um, when they're in a situation in which, like, you know, most officers, they're, they're going to draw their gun quite a bit, um, even if they never fire it. But if they do have to, you know, if they put themselves into a situation or they are they're in a situation where they're trying to deal with a crime in progress and they they shoot somebody, um, there's going to be an investigation, as there should be. And if it's an inappropriate, unjustified shooting or killing, then they could, you know, it used to be the case that they could lose their badge and never work in a police department again. And I, you know, that's also appropriate. But now, increasingly, you know, there's call, calls for these officers to be charged with murder. Um, in some cases, for shootings which are quite obviously justified. But if you're a cop, like setting aside the question of whether it's justified or not, if you're a cop and you make a mistake, just like doctors make mistakes, surgeons make mistake, and they might kill somebody by making a mistake, and they can be sued for malpractice, and they might lose their medical license. They're not going to be thrown into prison. And if you're a cop and you're facing the a reality where like it's if you are in a situation where you have to shoot somebody, you might actually end up on trial and put in prison. You're gonna two things are gonna happen. First of all, you're just gonna avoid being put in those situations. And what that means is no proactive policing. Don't pull anybody over. Don't respond to crimes in progress if you don't have to. Um, just patrol. Just, you know, um, just drive around in your car and try to get out as little as possible, which means criminals are able to just get away with crimes. The second thing that happens is you just switch to a department where um, in a city where there's a low crime rate and that's happening everywhere. Like this is the big irony of Black Lives Matter is that the calls for equality in terms of police treatment of, of, um, of um, you know, uh, working class black people versus affluent white people has has turned into a racially stratified inequality in public safety because police are are bailing on departments like the Oakland Police Department, um, the Richmond Police Department, which is what I reported on, um, in droves, and they're going to leafy, affluent suburbs with no crime. Um, because they'll never have to draw their gun and they'll never have to, you know, face the prospect of uh, being in the middle of a scandal and possibly facing a prison sentence because of it. And that's part of the reason why crime is soaring in these cities. I mean, there's a, I was reading uh, Thomas Sowell. He has some like books on basic economics. And one of the things that was most interesting is that he's like, his, his whole premise is the fact that people tend to make first order decisions without mm-hmm. thinking about second, third, fourth, you know, and onwards effects. And it seems to mm-hmm. me that this is kind of what's happening where it's like people are making emotional decisions on the basis of what they want the world to look like and act like. Mm-hmm. And they're having unintended consequences. Yeah, I think it's, even deeper than that, though, in the sense that, like, the, there is a, I feel like there's a, a tendency and a pattern within these calls from the activist left, which are nihilistic. Like, there's this, you know, the left that I came into was sort of the 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 New Deal left, the like the left that believed in equality and um, opportunity for everybody through essentially government action um, through 
you know, programs that, um, that create those opportunities. Um, now the calls from the activist left tend to just be about tearing things down. It's just like this, that, or the other thing are evil and need to be destroyed. And then with the defund the police thing in particular, you know, like a lot of people have had these conversations with people who are advocating for this stuff where you start to, to interrogate, well, okay, what happens, right? What happens if you don't have police? What happens to rapists? What happens to murderers? What happens to, you know, cartel drug dealers? Um, and uh, and then there's answers to that, right? Well, we're going to respond to, you know, these incredibly dangerous calls with social workers and nobody's ever asked the social workers if, you know, if they're comfortable being put in those, these situations. But there's these sort of like, these ad hoc answers to these things, but you can tell that these are like just completely duct taped together and put together with, you know, just stuck together. They're just, they're, they're, they're clearly afterthoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, The main thing is that we want to defund the police. And then what are we going to do then? I don't know. We could try this. We could try that, but it's just all about tearing things down and not about building anything up. And, um, and I think that's not just a thing of good intentions. There's something, I haven't figured it out, but there's something, there's some sort of reward structure and incentive structure for professional activists, um, which some, for some reason rewards these very nihilistic ideologies. Okay, well, so this, I think, links us to the Twitter files, because we know that there is top-down state control of narratives when it comes to something like COVID. But surely there's also plenty of external states that are attempting to manipulate what's happening inside of the United States to rip the country apart at the seams. You mean like foreign powers, foreign nations? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's the case. I mean, we don't like the, obviously Russia, you know, um, uh, had some sort of, operation um to uh to not only influence the 2016 election um and the 2020 election um but also to just kind of sow division but like i don't see any evidence that that was efficacious at all or that it was even particularly serious um it certainly didn't affect the outcome of the election as charged um and this stuff is predictable like yeah foreign powers are going to fuck with other foreign powers the u.s does it all the time we've been doing it for decades this isn't new um so um you know um is china um uh hoovering up tons of psychometric data from tiktok of americans uh, yeah, I assume that they are. And will they do something with it eventually? Probably. Um, but like, there's no active, like, they, like these threats are kind of baked in. Um, so I don't really buy the argument that there's this huge, and by the way, don't take my word for it. Rene Duresta, who's one of the central actors of the censorship industrial complex, has said this numerous times. And people, employees of Twitter have said it numerous times that, yes, there have been efforts by foreign governments, particularly Russia, to um, to propagate disinformation in the United States. But the main engine for disinformation that's gone viral has been domestic. And, um, and she said that herself because first of all, it's empirically true. And second of all, because it's a justification for then turning the apparatus, which has been focused on influencing foreign populaces onto the United States into monitoring and surveilling and manipulating American citizens. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like this is the maternalistic aspect that plays in at this industrial complex is that 
you're being kept like all this monitor all of the censorship is necessary because it's keeping you safe from these dastardly foreign actors so i would just add to that that i think that the paternalism is the security state and the maternalism is the motivation that that powers it Fair yeah enough. you're you're hitting on something that michael and i have been trying to puzzle out because in the censorship industrial complex you have this fusion of this like the the the, the people like these they're like people who come out of intelligence agencies who when they talk they sound like they're like they work for some like you know, Ford Foundation funded NGO or like, you know, they come out of some like activist group in the Bay Area. Like they use the language. Like a think tank or something. Like a a neutral think tank. And yeah, and they use, they use kind of woke language around like um, reducing harm and preventing fascism and like, you know, um, uh, 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 combating hate and like all this stuff, like kind of the, the, the ideology, this idea that this America's just infused, the population of America is infused with like unrepentant, horrific, transphobic, racist bigots, and that they're a threat to the social order and that we need to, um, you know, uh, we need to contend with them and, and, and monitor them and police them. Like all this stuff comes out out of kind of the woke ideology, but now it's been um, either adopted or just integrated into what we used to think of as like neocon stuff, you know, the, 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 the surveillance state, the stuff that, that Edward Snowden um, revealed, um, you know, the stuff going back to the Patriot Act and warrantless wiretaps. Like this is the same apparatus, except now it's kind of speaks now that it's monitoring the domestic population. It was then, but um, even more so now um, and more publicly now um, it is um, it is justified in the, the with the same language that comes from these kind of the left activism world. It's, it's bizarre and it's foreboding. It's very clever, actually. Yeah, it, it, it stems from a, a populist sense of tending to, you know, I mean, tending to the fears and the concerns of the population. Yeah, like so, Shyla and I were talking about this in context of everything that happened over over COVID, which is like people who I knew that were hardcore leftists, like anti-government, basically communists. The pandemic started, and they were like. I, I won't see anyone who hasn't been vaccinated. I can't be friends with you if you're not vaccinated. And there's not yeah. this awareness of the massive industrial backing of that narrative. There was a point where Antifa was physically beating down anti-lockdown protesters in LA. Like, you know, Antifa, many of whom identify as anarchists, were literally beating up people who were protesting like you know, state overreach. It's just absolutely bizarre. Yeah. And so in the Twitter files, like what have you been unraveling? Uh, uh, well, the Twitter files and then some, because it's gone beyond the Twitter files now, but, um, but you know, the, the Twitter files revealed the extent of the sort of um, law enforcement um, collaboration with the tech platforms. And, and by collaboration, I don't just mean, that the FBI was constantly contacting Twitter and, you know, asking them to take action on all these TOS violations. I mean, this is, by, by the way, like um, the, the the main office that was doing this was in San Francisco. So you have like outside of San, of the San Francisco field office for the FBI. I don't know, know exactly where the FBI field office is located in San Francisco, but 
presumably within blocks of the of the field office because it's probably somewhere downtown there's like cartel foot soldiers selling meth and fentanyl on the streets there's like sex trafficking of minors um on the street and like special agent elvis chan of the san francisco fbi is spending all day like searching for people who violated Twitter's terms of service and sending them to Twitter. But also, um, in addition to the FBI um, and other agencies, DHS, et cetera, even the CDC, sending all these violations to, to Twitter and asking them to take action on it, you know, the, the top ranks of, the, of, of Twitter management had become colonized by former intelligence um, uh, community uh, alumni to the extent that they had a Slack group called um, called. I think it was called BU chat or something like that. BU standing for Bureau uh, for the, for the federal Bureau of investigation. They had like a, a onboarding document for people coming out of the FBI um, who are being hired into Twitter. You know, the, 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 the um, deputy chief counsel of Twitter was the former deputy counsel for the FBI. Um, so like they'd colonized the top um, ranks of these, uh, these platforms. Um, so they were like, you know, um, all but kind of running the tech, these tech platforms. Um, so that was the degree of, of integration between the two. You know, since then, we've seen that this stuff is, is also global in reach. Um, we've been just reporting recently about, about all these um, new laws that are being passed. I mean, every, people have seen what happened in Canada around the Freedom Convoy um, or whatever it was called. But like le- recently they passed a, um, an even more draconian bill, which basically allows the government to monitor what's um, published on the internet and what's promoted on the internet. There's um, this um, this draconian um, anti-hate speech law that's being passed in Ireland. This stuff is happening all over the world. Um, this is a global issue. Um, so anyway, I've gone on long enough. You can ask, ask another question. I can't remember what the original question was. Well, okay. So there's a, there's a global issue. There's laws that are, that are clamping down to what's happening on the internet. Is there, is there a goal? Uh, a goal of, of what, of all the censorship? Yeah. Yeah. So I wrote about this recently. Um, so my view of it is that, um, so Public is the name of our publication, and it was um, we it was named after this book, Revolt of the Public, um, by Martin Gurry, who ironically is a former CIA analyst himself. Um, but he wrote this book, which is a brilliant book um, about how. So in the 20th century, you had sort of the if if you've read Noam Chomsky's book, Manufacturing Manufacturing Consent, or watched the documentary, that's sort of like the old model for um, for government control of the public discourse was through sort of leaning on well-placed editors and reporters and, um, and having sort of an integrated state media apparatus at the elite level. Um, and by having that sort of um, structure of power, they were, the government was able to keep within reasonable reins what was published by the media, by the corporate media. That was back when the corporate media had essentially kind of a monopolistic control over the social discourse. If ABC, NBC, CBS, the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, et cetera, were all on the same page on an issue, um, uh, were not kind of dissenting too far from the party line, that was would essentially shape the public discourse. That was totally disrupted with the rise of social media, um, both because social media disrupted um, the um, the business model of the corporate media by um, uh, by collapsing its 
advertisement based revenue um, business model, um, which contracted all of those um, legacy media outfit uh, outlets into sort of shadows of the, their former selves, but also because it created kind of a lateral integration of, of news consumers so they could communicate with each other and essentially arrive at their own opinions um, from the bottom up rather than from the top down. And that created 20 years of what the kind of political establishment experienced as an ongoing crisis in political authority. Um, In a very real, meaningful way, politicians do not have as much power as they used to have. Um, To a large extent, they are kind of followers of the crowd on on online sort of online movements they kind of follow them and then champion them and in congress they become kind of influencers themselves rather than actual like brokers of real power and we have like absolute um you know seem seemingly a permanent log jam in congress so legislation meaningful legislation doesn't even get passed or it gets passed maybe once every you know five years there's a real meaningful bill that's turned into law um but so that's kind of the status quo. And I believe that the censorship industrial complex is sort of a revolt of the elite where the elite have um, reconfigured their ability to be able to shape, control and shape the public dis- discourse by focusing on the distribution side rather than the news production side. So while they still can't control um, what the news media is producing both because it's not worth it because the news media, the legacy media doesn't have the the authority and the power that it once did. And because there's anybody can essentially produce content, what they can control is, um, is your visibility into it. So they've erected new gatekeepers in the form of these tech executives um, to replace the old gatekeepers who were, you know, your editors and reporters at the New York times and other and producers at the, at the uh, major TV news outlets. Um, so I think that they're erecting that kind of um, this new apparatus of power to be able to shape and control the, the public discourse. That's the end goal. Is there a way back from that? Um, well, yes. Um, I think what we're calling for is transparency. Like, I'm not going to deny that there are, um, that there, that like this, this project of trying to control quote unquote disinformation is entirely in bad faith or entirely, uh, without value because there is, you know, there, there, there are, um, violent movements that are shaped online. Actually, the more I dig into this, the more I do come to the arrive at the opinion that this stuff is is like overwhelmingly in bad faith and overwhelmingly without value. But I am prepared to concede that there are some reasons to be able to put some kind of control on this stuff, but it should not be happening in secret behind closed doors. Mm. So, like this stuff, to the extent that it's made transparent, two things happen. First of all, you know, regular people have visibility into it, which is important. For for a functioning democracy. And also it becomes, it puts a, a, a organic sort of natural break on the, um, on the ability and the willingness for those in power to be able to exercise these 
powers. First of all, it's tedious. Like if if this stuff becomes transparent, then first of all, every action you take is a possible you know political scandal that you have to deal with. But also, like I think that there should be mechanisms for, for tedious mechanisms for documenting this stuff. There should be paperwork, and that stuff should be put on a public website for everybody to see. And if that happens, then you don't get to have the situation that we have now, where like the Stanford Internet Observatory is able to rely on artificial intelligence to flag you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of social media posts at a time, dragnet the stuff up and then send it to DHS or to um, Twitter to take action on. If you have to, you know, have public scrutiny of all those posts and you have to actually justify every single action that you take. So I think by putting, you know, uh, laws that force that kind of transparency and by also defunding these organizations, like I do not think that taxpayers should be shoveling money over to these private sector organizations and NGOs and academic institutions to be to, to, you know, uh, essentially monitor and surveil American citizens. Um, so both by cutting off the taxpayer spigot and also putting on trans, um, transparency safeguards, I think that you could um, do a, a great deal of course correction. I mean, okay, so when it comes to something like COVID, I feel like the arc was that there was a virus of unknown provenance that was going to be dangerous and that there had to be this lockstep response to it and the government and you know plenty of ink has been spilled over the fact that the UN had a document called lockstep where they detailed exactly what was going to happen during the pandemic and it does actually reflect exactly what they did and so the the rationale was like okay we have to be able to control the narrative because there's enough people that are making stuff up that is causing harm that needs to be prevented from occurring and it sounds like what you're basically saying is that had they done that out in the open that it would have been at least easier and better to deal with than if it was done secretly while everybody was like no 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 we're not doing this well, certainly the stuff that was done in terms of monitoring social media posts through the this Stanford excuse me Stanford Internet Observatory or uh, a project called the Virality Project that stuff should have all been public for sure. In terms of how politicians and public health officials um, dealt with COVID, I mean there were a huge number of mistakes made. There was a, a New Yorker article a few years ago about Seattle's response, which was a good response to the, the initial outbreak of COVID in Seattle. But it went through the CDC, I think it was the CDC's playbook for how to deal with a pandemic that was like, a um, you know, put together like best practices which were collated from various epidemics and pandemics over, you know, the course of decades. And they had these kind of rules put in place for how you should respond to it. One of them was that you should never have politicians making these announcements. It should always be somebody in a white coat who to take it out of it because the minute you politicize it, you know, you lose the the goodwill of half the population. Um, of course, flagrantly violated by Donald Trump, by, um, by Cuomo, by Newsom, by, you know, all these people who are putting themselves in front of the camera. There were other rules like you, every every announcement. I believe it said that every announcement should be framed as a tenuous 
and now like it should always be framed in the context of this is evolving. Um, you know, this are our best guidance of, based on what we know now. Um, this could change tomorrow, but we think that you know masks are effective and you should wear masks. That wasn't done, right? Of course, like they, they were leading with this, like this is what we know and you have to abide. And anybody who dissents is you know literally killing people. Um, there were um, there there were um, but there was a third rule as well. Anyway, these these uh, these rules were just complete the the playbook was just absolutely abandoned um during covid so i think that like those mistakes were made um and then also i think that there was a political response to covid that kind of there was a real crisis in america that the political infrastructure i think needed like there the political establishment politicians in order to exercise power in America today and throughout the world to a large extent because of the revolt of the public, because of the rise of social media, because of their, um, the, the, the power that they've kind of, that has atrophied in response to those phenomena, they can only really rule with legitimacy by invoking a crisis. And so we've seen, you know, with 9-11, there was a crisis and there was a kind of a, 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 a somewhat off- well, not somewhat, an authoritarian political response to that crisis. Um, you know, as soon as that is subsumed, subsumed then came the, the financial crisis. Um, then came um, COVID. Throughout that whole point, you have climate change. And now um, you have what's being invoked as this disinformation crisis. So in the name of, of COVID, I think that there was a, I'm not saying that this was like planned by people who were conspiring in a back room. I think it was a kind of a natural evolution, but the political establishment kind of took the opportunity of a real pandemic to consolidate power and to um, and to erect the kind of authority that they had been lacking for several decades and that they had been um, that they uh, needed as a matter of survival to recoalesce. And so as soon as you had, you know, you had the the censorship industrial complex was focused on election integrity prior to COVID. They immediately leapt onto COVID um, and started the virality project in response to COVID. Then as soon as COVID was kind of faded away, now they've glommed onto this "Quote unquote disinformation pandemic or infodemic um, that they and the next time that there's a real crisis because that's obviously a fake crisis that they've contrived for the purpose of being able to to build this apparatus of power. The second there's a real crisis, they're going to glom onto that, and you're going to see sort of a, an attempt to resurrect this this apparatus. So I think that those two things were both there was like just honest fumbling of the ball and just like really stupid mistakes made by political leaders during COVID. But I think that there was also something more insidious happening. Hmm. Can you can you say more about the Internet Observatory and the Virality Project? I don't know anything about those. The Stanford Internet Observatory is out of Stanford University. It's one of the hubs of these, um, this, these, these, well, we're seeing more and more that we weren't aware of kind of come up every day, but there's like, you know, I'd say like a couple dozen organizations that make up what we see of the, 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 um, of the, of uh, of the censorship industrial complex in the United States, probably more like a half a dozen of the big ones in the Stanford Internet Observatory is probably the biggest of those. It's um, headed up by Alex Stamos, who used to be trust and safety for Facebook, and then Renee Duresta, who I mentioned before, who um, was a former CIA fellow um, and um, who's been kind of part of the Democratic Party apparatus for some time, and um, and she's um, she's sort of number two there, and um, and so they started the election integrity project, essentially responding to the threat of um, 
Trump and the MAGA right, um, and uh, and then that and then they kind of basically rebranded EIP as the Virality Project as soon as um, COVID came up to sort of sniff out and um, and censor COVID quote unquote disinformation. And what are the what are the tactics that they're using to do this that are beyond what we've seen before? Um, a lot of it is so they identify so for there's three areas that they target there's disinformation misinformation and malinformation disinformation is deliberate propaganda essentially lies that are propagated deliberately in order to you know mislead or disrupt um a, a population um misinformation is honestly believed but false information that's put out say you know I don't know, microchips and vaccines or something that people honestly believe, um, but is uh, bogus and misleading. Um, and um, so that's the, the second category. The third category, malinformation, is true information, which is which is which is dangerous because it might lead people to the wrong conclusions. So things like, for example, um, masks being relatively ineffective or the COVID vaccine not preventing transmission. All three of these are targets of these, these like they explicitly talk about these um, three categories as being areas that they act upon. That's um, the one that freaks me out the most, by the way, the, the malinformation, because then it's like, who is the decider, right? Yeah, exactly. It, and and by the way, the people who should be d- deciders, like people like Jada Part- Jay Bhattacharya, who's one of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, who's a sta- uh, on the same campus as Stanford epidemiologist, was kicked off of Twitter for saying that we should have a targeted response and not do lockdowns and not do school closures at the beginning of the pandemic. And so he was overruled by people with no training in this stuff um, because you know he was speaking heresy. Um, so, and the third that malinformation is obviously the most alarming category, but like I hate to focus too much on it because. We live in, you know, a country governed by the First Amendment. Even like mistakes and lies are still protected speech. So, like, I don't want to focus too much on the true information, even though that's the most obvious kind of sympathetic category. Because, like, we should shift the Overton window around the fact that, like, you are allowed allowed to to lie in public in America without, you know the government taking action and trying to silence you and you're you allowed, allowed to have yeah. mistakes. Yeah. And it's hard to sue people for that stuff in, in the United States because of the first, because of first amendment protections. Mm. Well, I, I kind of want to unpack that a little bit because I'm, I, I oscillate over that a lot where on one hand, I totally agree with you. We live in a country where freedom of speech is sacred and should be maintained. But on the other hand, I'm like, look, we know through history that when you, when people make up lies about hot button issues, that it leads to terrible things happening down the line. Like often that's the purview of Mm -hmm. governments that have like false flags and then end up going to war on the basis of false information. But you can also have people that are putting out statistics that it's like, you know, the Jews are the problem for all of our economic problems. They're the cause of all of our economic problems. And so if we just get rid of the Jews, everything's going to be okay. And so I, I kind of, I, I, I feel. Do you think it's like got to be a cost-benefit analysis, right? Like, does all of your strangling of information lead to a better place? Even it's not like the the place where you have lots of bad ideas circulating around. 
obviously that's there are issues that need to be dealt with but which is worse isn't that kind of but even the even the even the premise like what like in the united in american history what would be some examples of um you know disinformation coming up organically from the population that led to a catastrophic outcome war of the worlds no, no what about <laughs> mccarthyism well, that came from state actors. That came from the government, right? McCarthy was a senator. Like the, like the, the, and the false flag stuff that you point to has happened in United States history. You know, uh, 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 the Gulf of Tonkin, you know, mass weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, but those also came from the government. So like, uh, so, so like the, the biggest propagator of disinformation in the United States, in American history has been the U.S. government, not American citizens, as far as I can tell. I mean, I'm open to an example to show otherwise, but I can't think of one. Well, in fact, think- the only like disinformation, the like specific weaponization of disinformation to, say, affect a electoral campaign that I can point to happened in Alabama around the Roy Moore race, which was run by which was a propaganda, uh, uh, literally a disinformation operation to try to affect the outcome in favor of the Democrats, which was run by Renee DiResta. She was the pro- she was the one who ran this disinformation operation to affect an election before going on to head the election integrity project to pre- to prevent Russian disinformation from disrupting American elections. What what happened that's, in Alabama? That's freaking unbelievable! How, is that yeah? How does that how is that possible? Yeah, like what happened she, and like how did she go on to, to, to great success in monitoring elections? She she ran a campaign, um, uh, a online campaign to um, to allege that Roy Moore was, well, that there were a bunch of um, uh, Alabamans who wanted, uh, who, were, fit, who uh, were supporting Roy Moore because he would prohibit the sale of alcohol in the state, that he was essentially a teetotaler who was going to pose that on the state of Alabama. The theory being that it would split the Republican vote, that there were a ton of Republicans who would be absolutely against that, not, you know, and that there would be, and so, um, and, and so they created a bot army um, of people saying this who were fake people posting on social media in order to create this illusion that there was this constituency calling for prohibition of alcohol in Alabama. So who, this was is like, she, who was she working for at the time? It was a group called New Knowledge. Um, it was a firm that was doing this on behalf of um, Doug Jones, the Democratic candidate. I mean, not, but not you, under his, not he wasn't directing, it was outside of the campaign, but it was to affect the election right. in his favor. How do, how do you go from that to skyrocketing to heading an institution at Stanford that's fighting these, that's supposed to be fighting. (laughs) It's a very good question. And I think part of the answer might lie in the fact that she was a CIA fellow as a undergrad and um, never mentioned that association (laughs) until, until Michael called it out on, Joe Rogan, and then she responded to it. And by the way, the only reason we came across this is because her colleague, Alex Stamos, introduced her at an at a speech one time and said, Renee DiResta, who, who, um, who used to work for the CIA. Um, and then we were like, oh my God, she used to work for the CIA. And then her response was, I didn't work for the CIA. I was merely a fellow as an undergrad for the CIA. Um, so, and I believe her, I take her at her word that that's the case, but you know, the, 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 um, the, 
The well, it's a networking that thing, right? Work for the CIA, you never don't, you never stop working for the CIA, even if you're not on payroll. You're an asset. Yeah, it's a net. It's a, also, at the very least, it's a networking situation, right? Where yeah, you, you know, in order to find yourself at the top of a Stanford institution, you probably have to be really good at making friends with people. She has this bizarre story where she says that, like, she was just a mom living in San Francisco, and she was a she. This is pre pre COVID, so she was um she was kind of rooting out anti vaxxers. These are MMR anti vaxxers, right? The people saying um, claiming this autism connection, and she'd like gone and testified in Sacramento about it and stuff. She was just a mom. She was really concerned about this about all this vaccine misinformation, and so that's what got her start. And then, like a couple years later, she's working for the Obama administration. Um, uh, target like rooting out ISIS disinformation online. It's like, dude, like that. Th- these two, did, you're just a mom, like doing like rooting out anti-vaxxers. Couple years later, you're like you're like monitoring ISIS for the federal government. <laughs> well, it seems, right? and like the amount of sophistication of experience that you would need to combat terrorism across an ocean. It just seems like a completely different wheelhouse. That's what's so bizarre yeah. about it. It's not in any way related to any other kind of activism. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah, we actually tried to get her on the show a long, long time ago. She did not oh, respond did you? to our email. Yeah, I respond think we had another email. guy from the the observatory. Tom, was it Thomas Lynn or something like that? Anyways, it was in the very early days. We did not mm-hmm. learn too I'm much. I'm surprised she didn't respond, actually, because she's quite, you know, like, public and kind of prolific in her we, we were alien puppets when we first started this podcast we had a uh, like full puppet like arm puppets that we would do the interviews with and uh <laughs> <laughs> that went over like a led zeppelin so went undignified <laughs> oh my well <laughs> we were ter- stature we, yeah, yeah we, we were, were just we, we, were, we didn't want to be people on the internet at first we kind of got over it but uh, we, we resisted that for a while. And um, so maybe we should try back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, try now. <laughs> I mean, I, I take your point about the disinformation largely coming from the U.S. government and from the top down rather than the bottom up. I do, I, I do think that there is a legitimate aspect, which is that when economic times are hard, that there is a tendency for people to organize into groups that set themselves against some either uh, gender or sexual identity or race or race or whatever. Like there's a tendency for these these currents to become powerful in society. And we've seen that over the course of the last century, that when that happens, that you get a really, really terrible social outcome. Like people end up getting killed on the basis of that. Right. And so like one example could be the KKK, but like the position of the left in the last century was, you know, the ACLU defending the KKK's right to march through Skokie, um, despite the fact that, you know, everybody in the ACLU in particular obviously detested and feared and despised the KKK. But like the solution to the to speech and hate speech was more speech, not less speech. Um, you know, this was the, the the this is the dynamic of living in, de, in a democracy. So what has changed exactly to justify measures now that we used to stand a hundred percent against? Well, I, is that a the rhetorical cloaking, question? Because I, mean, I think I have an answer. No, no, it's a real question. 
Okay, so I think that the degradation of the social fabric. Like, I think that when you are surrounded by people and you you recognize that you love people who are perhaps they have different mindsets than you and you are you believe in the power of debate and conversation and social organization because you have a strong network of people that the ties that bind are stronger than the ideas that divide where you will you will sort of push through some kind of political division or unpleasantness and still sit down at the Thanksgiving table or you will still see them and you will you will be defined through those relationships that's gone like you hear people mm-hmm. all the time being like yeah I, cu- I cut those people out of my life that's what I do that somebody somebody's a Trump supporter no way I'm never speaking to them again and I think that when you have that and you have this atomization and so you are no longer in contact with someone on a regular basis who you love that has a problematic belief, you're like, okay, well, the only way to modulate that problematic belief is by offshoring the people who monitor that. And that gets put into the hands of the government because you're like, well, I'm voting for people who I, on the surface, appear to support the things that I believe in and I trust for them to monitor. So I, I assume that you're quite aware of how dark that vision is that you just described, right? But I mean, I think that that's like, I I honestly think that the darkness comes from good intentions always. Like you hear people talking about like artificial wombs right now. Have you heard of this? Uh, Is this the embryos to like the, to put into men? Is this that thing? No, this is like having, having literally like right now we have test tube babies that are IVF babies. And now there's this movement that's kind of associated with Silicon Valley where you have a lot of women that have a lot of money that are putting off reproduction until later in life. It's causing a tremendous amount of, of, of tension and just like terrible outcomes for people who wanted to have children, but they put it off too long. They can't. And so now the conversation is starting. Well, one of the reasons that women don't have children is because it's so hard on the body. If we were to be able to have artificial wombs where you can incubate the baby outside of the body, more women would have children because they wouldn't have to take the burden onto themselves. Yeah, that's disturbing. But I'm like, Uh, this is, this is the thing that happens is that it seems like people like, oh God, I'm going to sound so moralistic, but I think that we have a tendency to want to avoid uncomfortable things. Like something that I, that was really like, I grew up in a Russian family. Family is still Russian. So we're very like argumentative and confrontational. And there's not a conversation that you can't have within the confines of the family and then move past it. Mm-hmm. But something that I realized in my interactions with my American friends is that the idea of somebody who's cool is somebody who doesn't have those difficult conversations. Like you see somebody doing something fucked up and you're never the one who's like, hey, dude, that's kind of fucked up. Like you shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really, really vital to social fabric in America to not be the harpy who's like, you shouldn't do that. I don't necessarily disagree with you, but what you're describing is a country that has become so so bankrupt of social capital, so deficient in social solidarity, so atomized from each other, so distrustful of each other that the uh, that the natural outcome of that is a authoritarian government. That well, you published about this just recently. Yeah, but like, this this is a 
this is a bad thing, right? This <laughs> yeah. is not a good outcome for American democracy. But you can, so like there's, I'm looking at the, the public archives right now. And so on the 31st, you and Schellenberger published the article, How Bad Is It? Where you had that, uh, where you had the chart, which was like, how have social values in America changed over the course of the last twenty years? And it's a stunning. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a. I actually can't see the article because it's for paid subscribers, but I know the chart. It's like it talks about the various values that people have, which is like community and social responsibility and all of these like larger things. Uh, I think the religious faith is one of them. And they've all tanked since after COVID. And the only thing that's gone up is money. Like that's the one value that people have placed greater and greater emphasis on. Right. Um, so this is the Robert Putnam argument. Um, the bowling alone thing, which, um, and there's been many other studies, which is even better than his, I think, um, around this issue. I, I agree with all that. I mean, I think that we, so like the, I have a friend who reported from the Middle East for a long time. And I asked him about the, um, like why radical, like jihadism is so, uh, has taken such a hold in, in a lot of these authoritarian countries and he said it was because of the evisceration of the political left in a lot of these countries, um, like of, you know, a lot of these, these Middle Eastern countries used to have vibrant um, uh, socialist movements um, and they were a vibrant part of civic society and they'd been rooted out in the name of anti-communism during the Cold War and um, and replaced with these authoritarian, these secular authoritarian governments. And he was saying, you know, if you're oppressed by an authoritarian government and you don't have a legitimate, humane um, sort of um, culture within the civic discourse, which is the, what the, the left at that time provided in these countries, it just created this vacuum for a resistant, a language of resistance that was, um, you know, led by other authoritarians in the name of like, you know, these, these jihadist terrorist organizations. Um, so what, and so like, in other words, the, the, um, the thinning out of that, of civic society and of civic culture is a vehicle for the rise of authoritarian regimes. Um, and it sounds like that's what you're describing in the United States. And I don't disagree with that. I think that's a really interesting way to formulate it. Um, I, I just think that that's obviously and transparently a bad situation. So there's almost nowhere that we can go right now except for Peter Thiel, right? In what sense? Well, because I think that Thiel has come on record pretty loudly saying that the best form of government is a constitutional monarchy and that democracy is a failed experiment. Has Thiel said that? I know that's the Curtis Yarvin thing. Well, he, there's there's a um, he gave a speech at Stanford, I think, in like 2014 or something. I can send it to you afterwards, where he mm-hmm. basically comes out and he's like, this is democracy doesn't work. And he's funded Yarvin. He's, he's, Mm -hmm. so he's, he's basically this like dark money that is feeding the, the thinkers of the dark enlightenment that are pushing for the idea that democracy has failed at the same time that they're pushing this massive transhumanist technological integration into our lives. Plus the surveillance state. Like if you look at the Thiel portfolio at like founders fund, Mm -hmm. it is a terrifying map of where we're going. Because it is Neuralink, it is Palantir, mm-hmm. it is Anduril, it is like all of these companies whose goal is the 
the the closing down of the window of discourse and the increase of surveillance. And I, I don't see enough people talking about the flow of money through venture capital to technology to the intelligence agencies. Yeah. So I would, you know, disagree profoundly with with Teal and with Yarvin. Um, and uh, and they would disagree, disagree profoundly with me, and Teal at least would probably think that I'm naive in this belief. But you know, my I am a defender of Enlightenment values, which I think are under threat right now. I think that so when I was talking earlier about this sort of the, this shift in in political and ideological regime in the United States, I think that is a shift away from the enlightenment values that we were founded on. And um, some of that is coming from the right. Um, and that's what, you know, the media has focused most on these like quote unquote, these, these supposed fascist uh, movements on the right. But I think the main challenge is becoming from the left because like this language of, equity and um and sort of this the, the identitarian politics is all profoundly anti-enlightenment um, um you know there's been in like even to the point where we have a piece coming out a video coming out next week um of michael looking at this speech that obama gave at um stanford um uh you know basically at the behest of the Stanford Internet Observatory, um, which seems to suggest um, that if you look closely at the language, that the Constitution is an anachronistic um, institution in need of debugging, quote-unquote. He literally uses that term uh, that it's like, a you know, that there are bugs in the Constitution. Um, and it seems as if he may be referring to the First Amendment as a kind of... Um, buggy feature of the constitution which needs to be updated is that the um, so is like, that the speech where he was talking about changing the text of section 230 to hold platforms liable for the content that's on them i don't believe that's in that speech but i hadn't listened to the whole thing i, I literally was with right before i was i was here i was with michael and he was telling me about about it so i haven't read it myself but um this was a speech that uh, we had never heard of before so um i don't think it's something that was well publicized um but anyway, so like I think that we are – I'm a defender of the Enlightenment and the values of the Enlightenment that are now under threat. In that sense, I may be anachronistic myself. Um, but again, you know, I am I came out of the left uh, and I don't – I recognize the left anymore from the left that I came out of. And the left that I came out of was a very kind of, in a way, boring left. It was like a mundane, you know, New Deal – and power workers, um, uh, distrust of corporations, um, uh, championing free speech, um, just the kind of the, 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 the tip of the spear for a lot of the values that I think the United States was, the United States was founded on in its most sort of ideal form. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's been sort of sad to be orphaned away from being able to identify with any of those large scale movements and kind of get stuck in the middle because, um, yeah, you just feel kind of betrayed by those superstructures. I'm actually looking at the text of the speech right now and it is the same speech. And so later on in that same presentation, he basically went through and he was, he was attacking section 230, which is a law in the telecommunications act that says that you can't hold platforms liable for the content that is on them. The same mm -hmm. way that, like, you can't hold the telephone company liable if somebody's, like, planning a bombing on, on 
on a phone line. And right, he- but everybody, everybody, everybody challenges Section 230 on the right and the left. Um, if there's one thing the right and the left can agree upon, it's that Section 230 needs to be reformed or at least needs to be wielded as a political weapon against the tech companies. But the difference is that the what what I'm 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 flatteringly calling the left because it's not really leftist anymore. But the left side of the aisle is using Section 230 as a as leverage to get more censorship, uh, whereas the political right has been using Section 230 as a weapon to uh, dismantle uh, the censorship regimes of tech companies. Yeah, exactly. And so, like his point was the fact that you need to be able to hold the tech companies liable if somebody's spreading, you know, misinformation or disinformation on them in order to clamp down on their ability to host these things and then to turn away from them. Which for me was terrifying because we actually we we included this the that speech in a video that we did a while ago about the sort of the it was right after the Department of Homeland Security uh, picked that really kind of freaky lady who did the song and dance routine oh, right. about misinformation. Nina yeah. That was the most terrifying thing that I've seen happen in government in, yeah. in a long time. And so we did a video about it where it was like, look, this is an this is a terrifying arc because the minute that you start to hold the tech companies liable, you won't even need the government to step in and censor anything. Because if there's if the it, because the companies will gladly do yeah. it themselves. Like well, if they'll you, turn it over to AI too. That's when it's just kind of like lights out. Yeah, and it's yeah with the, the AI thing is really a terrifying addition to all of this. Yeah, I mean they're already doing it, um, and they're doing it with AI. Um, the the fusion the, the the to me the most insidious thing is that this sort of uh, cozy relationship between the government and the tech platforms is a loophole around. The First Amendment, right? The government can't censor you, but um, private corporations can. They're not subject to First Amendment um, restrictions. And so um, by setting up, this is why it almost has become um, outdated to refer to the, in my opinion, to refer to the state as the state per se, like the public sector, the government as being the institution of the state, because the state has, the government has become so enmeshed with private corporations, both in the terms of like subsidies and favor trading, but also in terms of like contracting out, um, in terms of the, 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 the sort of, um, a rotating door between these high government positions in the private sector that really, when you refer to the state, you know, I, I don't want to sound like, like, uh, Curtis Yarvin, but um, but it's a regime like that word has assumed purchase in recent years. I think it was because it's appropriate because there's something that um, is larger than the state that permeates the private corporations and the nonprofit sector and academic institutions with the government, where they all act as sort of a blob um, and they exercise power um, uh, in an orchestrated fashion. So the U.S. government, you know, basically subcontracts out censorship to these private corporations that can get away with it. And they talk about that openly, like Rene DeResta refers to um, and Alex Stamos refer to this loot, this um, the, the ability for her organization to be able to do things that the government has um, legal restrictions is the way she phrases it. The government is is legally constrained from being able to do this stuff, and so there's a, a like a, a a gap. There's a market disconnect that we can fill, which is basically we can censor without fear of the First Amendment. And then there's this even greater international collaboration between governments where um, 
there's this, this group called the five eyes of like kind of Anglo-Saxon countries where, um, the, these governments spy on each other. Like the UK spies on American citizens and American citizens spy on the UK and Australians, and New Zealanders, et cetera, specifically so that they can share that information with each other. Mm-hmm. So the United States can't spy directly on American citizens, but the UK can spy on American citizens and then share that information with the US government. Mm-hmm. So it's just a workaround, you know? Doesn't the Patriot Act and the NSA wiretapping let them spy on domestic citizens? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the legal niceties are of it, but they mm-hmm. are certainly hoovering up all this information and storing it in a massive server in Utah or wherever that 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 um, that edifice is, um, and um, and you know, likely reading through it, and monitoring it um, through via the Patriot Act, but they still can't like. And the FBI can't go out and just spy on American citizens. They can't just do that. Mm. You know, um, um, they can't uh, like task out. Well, I'm sorry. The FBI can, um, the CIA cannot, the FBI has, can do so, you know, with a active investigation. Um, but the intelligence agencies still can't just spy on Americans willy nilly, but the UK government can, and we can do it to, 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 um, UK citizens and then share that information. I mean, for me, this is, the scariest thing in in the world, and I'm not a very scared person. Like I'm not phased by a lot of the other threats that you hear about. You know, I figure we'll we'll find solutions to most of the problems, whether it's natural disasters or food shortages or anything else. But it seems like it goes back to the idea that a democracy depends on a good press. That's that's a that you have like people cannot make decisions if they don't have good information. And so I guess my the one thing that I spend a lot of time poking at is if we were I do believe that we have a lot of power in mass as people in the world still if we were all just to walk out in the street and march on Washington about or whatever about one thing regarding this in order to clean up and and make our information clean again right what what would that look like like what is what is I mean, I mean, it's kind of an impossible question. I don't expect you to necessarily have the silver bullet, but what would that first step look like? I think uh, you're right. I don't have an answer to that question because I think it's so much deeper and more pervasive. Um, one thing that I've been kind of coming to understand viscerally from uh, paying attention to this stuff is how much authoritarianism um, authoritarian governments, which we usually imagine as like, you know, this this very top-down apparatus of the state just controlling everybody and people kind of going along with it out of fear. Um, but how much of authoritarian regimes depend upon the, not just the f- fearful complacency, but the active willingness of the population. Um, you know, authoritarian regimes thrive where people are fearful of one another and um, and where people are so distrustful of each other that they not only submit to but demand that the government and other powerful actors come in and um, and you know uh, and create structures of authority for them um, and so like um, I think that this is a really cultural issue like again I'm Gen X and we 
when we were growing up, you know, we were known as this like rebellious generation when we were young. And I assumed when I was young that every young, that that was just synonymous with being young. If you're young, you're anti-authoritarian, you rebel. Now I'm coming to realize that that's actually probably a projection out of the fact that our parents were boomers and they came up in the 60s. And so they were rebellious when they were young. And then we just kind of associated being young with being rebellious. But like the generations come out, younger millennials and Zoomers are, I think, quite an authoritarian generation insofar as they're not rebelling against anything. And when they get offended and microaggressed against they, you know, do their first thing that they turn to is they demand that the institutions that they belong to put up more rules, put up more uh, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of authoritarian structures to, 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 to protect them. Um, and so like, I think that that's a turn that American culture is going in, in which we are like, you know, a lot of this stuff, when you talk about this disinformation stuff, I feel like 30 years ago, if you talk about government censorship by proxy, people would instantly be like, oh, yeah, I'm totally against that. Right. But now you have to have a long conversation where people are like, yeah, but what do we do with disinformation? What about the threats of disinformation? And, um, you know, if the government's not going to protect us from that, then who is? And, da, 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 da. and there is an openness and kind of a Almost, there's like a lot, the, you know, people, a lot of folks in the, like a lot of hardcore Democrats are demanding this stuff. Like they're insisting on more government censorship. Um, and I think that that's a dark place for the country to be in. Um, I think that it, it it opens up an avenue in which not just, it's not just that powerful opportunistic actors can come in and create an authoritarian structure it's that literally that political will will be coming from demands from below and the government will meet that demand by you know enthusiastically meet that demand and we could be you know a decade away from that i'm not saying it's inevitable i'm not saying it's even likely i'm just saying it's a possibility in a way that i don't think it has no, it been seems before, very, it seems life. very likely all things if nothing changes but that's what i'm curious is like what are the ways in which the youth can be inspired to see it, like to feel like they have the ability to take control of their circumstances in a way that they don't require institutional intervention? Like if it's a cultural thing, it seems like it's a reaction to some perceived fear or some perceived like impotence towards dealing with those situations. Well, I think oh, so. I, I personally think that that has a lot to do with a lack of opportunity. Like, I, I think that there's a view of the world right now, which is that as a young person, you don't have a lot of options that are available to you and that you're going to basically be a just kind of a, a, a worker drone for the rest of your life. Like it used to be that you could work for a corporation and there was, there was honor and there was some meaning to it. And you would be, you know, you, you would have a long career and you'd retire from the same job that you worked in. And I think that if you have a populace where corporate profits are going up, but wages remain stagnant and there's not a sense of opportunity, there's not a sense where you can go somewhere, there's not a sense that the future will be better than the past, it's really hard to create a youth culture that feels like they can accomplish something because they're looking out at the next 40 years of their lives and they're like, oh my God. 
I, I think at the at the elite level, that's true. This is something I've written about actually myself. Is that I think that the so the millennial generation that got out of like college in around like 2008 to say 2012 or so, um, right during the uh, financial meltdown, um, you know, there was this whole period that like that HBO show Girls was kind of um, uh, based on of this like generation that came out of these elite colleges and then came into the workforce and had these like unpaid internships and these like, you know, were worked at Starbucks and that was a kind of, kind of like a, a cultural trope for a while. Um, I think that there was a massive overproduction of elites at that point in which um, there were not, and there were, the jobs had disappeared for these people to be able to um, uh, see for themselves a pathway to the sort of, prosperous and self-fulfilling future that had been essentially promised them by getting good grades and going to the right colleges. Um, and I think that that was a part of the origins of sort of the, the woke discourse. Um, because I think that they started to become very cynical about the world and, um, and started to take up these sort of crusades for self-meaning, these political crusades um, in uh, in the absence of a career that would give them meaning. And because this came from an elite cadre, baked into that was this sort of class contempt for regular people. So like a lot of this discourse, the woke discourse, as well as the discourse from the intelligence agencies and um, the censorship groups around the public discourse is... is um, there's this assumption that regular working people in America are um, hateful and um, stupid and uh, and dupes for fascists and for other malign actors. That they're all sort of these like uh, uh, you know uh, will these like good Germans in a way. You know that they they, they that they could become Nazis at any second because they're all these hateful bigots and they're and they're dim-witted and like that is and 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 therefore we have to fear like you know um racism everywhere transphobia everywhere intolerance and the rise of fascism i think that this all comes from a very kind of the the way that these elite actors regard just the 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 teeming masses of the american citizenry um and i you know, reject that view, obviously, wholesale. Um, but I think it is a very, I think it comes from um, the confluence of an sort of an elite disposition vis-a-vis the rest of the population combined with what you're talking about, which is a diminished lack of opportunity among the elites. And then also, this is a whole new thing, but there's also been a lot of make-work programs, both in the government and from in the NGO sector, essentially to employ a bunch of people with like master's degrees and you know, English or cultural studies um, who can't get a job anywhere else. And so now they're getting jobs at these like NGOs and in the diversity, equity and inclusion sector. But there, I mean, do you not think that there is a problem with future economic opportunities for somebody who's, uh, let's say, graduating high school today? Like there's oh, going to yeah, be a class of kids that's graduating right now. Like what do they have? I look at the landscape right now and it is terrifying. Yeah. For somebody who's just graduating right now in the dawn of the like AI era where all these companies are like, oh my God, we can have ChatGPT write our copy for us. Excellent. We don't really yeah. have a manufacturing sector 
we we just we have this economy that's kind of the the programmers have programmed themselves into obsolescence almost and even the people that that I, I know a lot of programmers and for a long time they've been kind of like no it's gonna be fine it's not really gonna be a problem and in the last like month or two there's really this sense of just oh my god what what have we done i don't know but i think actually the programmers are going to be in a, a relatively favorable position because i was listening to this podcast the other day where they were talking about how um first of all ai the assumption is that it's going to displace all types of jobs and it certainly is and in particular white collar jobs um much more so than blue collar jobs like you mm -hmm. know lawyers for example um but uh but first of all there's it's going to unleash a lot of um sort of uh, industries and professions that we can't even imagine right now. And that will create more jobs. I'm not saying that the balance will be that more jobs are created than lost, but there will be some number of jobs that are also generated by AI that weren't there before. Um, but also um, in order to use AI effectively, like in order to use chat GPT effectively, even if chat GPT is based on natural language and you don't have to have, you know, uh, coding skills to be able to use it, but but to be this is what they were saying on this podcast. In order to deploy it effectively, to do things much more than just like essentially a glorified Google search, um, in order to get it to be able to, you can do things like have it call through spreadsheets and come up with like do data analysis and stuff like that. But you do have to know code to be able to do that, like a little bit of code to be able to do it. And so this guy was saying that he thinks that in the future, the people who are going to be most unemployable are the people who have no coding knowledge whatsoever. But if you're a lawyer, say, um, who has a coding coding knowledge, you're going to be the person who keeps your job because you can use you can program AI to write legal briefs, and all the the people writing those legal briefs who don't know how to do that will lose their jobs. So I think people with some coding knowledge are actually going to going to have a relative advantage over other people. Yeah, and and people who have dug into the AI, like the chat GPT early on too. Like I'm, I'm trying to bring it into the classroom too next semester, you know, figure out how to, there's this hilarious thread going around at my university amongst all the faculty, like half the faculty is like, we got to ban this and like get this like out of the university. And the other half are like, no, 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 no. Like these kids are going to need to know how to do this basically. Yeah. And yeah. so I definitely come down on that side and it'll be interesting to try to implement it into the assignments right because you can't really assign essays anymore that's pretty much out the window and so you <laughs> yeah. have to kind of come up with creative new ways of both integrating that technology but also assessing the students uh you know they're i guess really it's an it's a knowledge assessment for university yeah yeah i think the ai from what i've heard from people who s seem to be in a position to know the um the, what's afoot the changes that AI is going to bring in are going to be a order of magnitude more um, transformative than what the internet has has brought us, you know, a couple of decades ago, which is obviously a world transforming technology. And AI is going to be a whole nother level, um, which is going to, so it's too reductive to see it as, you know, to, as, as to, to um, see its effects as being either a plus or a minus it's just going to be a, a confluence of the of, of both and it's going to be so transformative that it's like almost useless to try to regard it in that way 
Except that understanding it and and being comfortable with it and familiar with it and understanding how to be on the right side of the AI is is in no ways, um, well, that's totally worthwhile, whoever you are. Yeah, absolutely. I think think that in some sense, it will increase the dependence upon the government because I do think that it probably will make fewer jobs than it takes away and i think that there's going to be a bigger push for universal basic income and i think that universal basic income is going to cost is going to come with strings attached like i think it's going to come with the subservience to this surveillance complex to the the things that you can say and that you cannot say and it's going to be it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out because nothing is free and yeah i also sorry I also think that it's going to lead to an even more of an overproduction of elites because of all these white collar jobs that are going to be displaced. And when there is an over, usually when there's an overproduction of elites and it becomes acute, bad things happen politically, like the Crusades is one example. Um, But like, I think that it's like when elites become, have their ambitions dashed, it feeds into usually extremist political movements. Um, And so I think that AI may have the consequence of of um uh indirectly furthering more political polarization and more political extremism and more craziness in america well we'll have to check in down the line to see how that goes we've lodged our predictions so we'll see (laughs) i don't know it's just it's pretty depressing for me i I wish i had like i still wish i had some solution like what i can do in my only likes movies that have happy endings it's true. It's true. Yeah, I, I just always need something to aim at. I guess I feel, I feel worse when I'm not pointed at a solution. At least, even if it's completely, even if it's a thousand years from now, like that doesn't really matter to me. I just want to be able to aim at something and move towards it. You should watch this movie that I just watched a couple nights ago. This 2007 movie called. The Lives of Others, a German movie about the Stasi, um, which is both. Uh, dark and touches on a lot of the uh, anxious themes that we've talked about today, but also has a happy ending. Mm. All right. I'll, <laughs> I will, Sold. Yeah, I'll do that at dinner tonight. That sounds great. That's fantastic. Leighton, thank you so much for coming by. It's really, I, I love the work that you do. I've been reading it for, for, for a while and I just, I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. And, and uh, disclaimer, that I said when uh, I think we were off air is that uh, I wasn't at my sharpest because I got up at 4.30 this morning because of a toddler. So I apologize for that. But thank you. That was fun. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day, sir. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye.